Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. College athletics, we are watching it shift before our eyes. We'll get to the bottom of a couple of things on today's show. I've been wondering recently about the recruiting impact of what we're watching with USC and UCLA leaving the Pac-12 conference and uh, going to the Big Ten conference. We, uh, I've also been wondering about the ACC. I got a chance this morning to do a couple of radio interviews in the ACC footprint. Did one on a Syracuse uh, uh, flagship station, one on the uh, Pitt flagship station, and I got the idea that the ACC fans are maybe not as wild about this entanglement or this partnership or this alliance that the Pac-12 conference is supposedly pursuing that's right yesterday we talked about the quote-unquote loots partnership that the pac-12 conference would like to have with the acc i know more about it i'll share what i know on today's show i want your phone calls as well you can start lining up right now at 503-417-7575 we'll take your phone calls from across the pac-12 footprint beyond that if you're uh, listening in ACC country or Big Ten country or Big 12 country, I'll take your calls as well. Uh, we, uh, we don't have a conference affiliation on this show, but we focus a lot on the Pac-12 because the Pac-12 is in a little bit of a crisis right now. Now, the conference leadership is acting with a lot of urgency. Yesterday, we saw the news that the Pac-12 was uh, entering a negotiating period. It's a 30-day window of negotiations that they will offer up to ESPN, Fox, uh, everybody who's involved in uh, potentially broadcasting games. I'm told that Turner may be a player here in the next cycle as well. Keep an eye on Turner, which has uh, traditionally been a basketball-friendly network. It seems as though they're willing or interested in getting into college football. So keep an eye on them. But what will happen in the next 29 days is that the Pac-12 conference will review these offers. I suspect that it's a foregone conclusion that the Pac-12, the bulk of the Pac-12's Tier 1 rights, their main games in football and in men's basketball, uh, I, I think it's a foregone conclusion that that it will end up probably on ESPN. There could be some streamy partners in, uh, involved in, in carrying some secondary uh, Olympic sports, the Pac-12 network content, but I expect that ESPN is the bidder here and that the Pac-12's overture or I guess uh, entanglement or partnership or whatever you want to call it with the ACC is a real thing. I told you that yesterday. If you're an ACC fan, I want to hear from you. I want you to tell me whether or not you think this is a great idea, lukewarm on this idea, do you like it or not like it, and tell me why. If you're a Pac-12 fan... Are you okay with the idea that the Pac-12 lost UCLA and USC to the Big Ten? But the Big Ten and the SEC probably don't want any other Pac-12 schools. That's kind of the temperature right now. Uh, that could change. 
I could foresee the Big Ten or the SEC going, hey, uh, all of a sudden maybe uh, maybe we need to add two more and maybe the Bay Area television market appeals to you and Stanford and Cal become targets or maybe Washington and Oregon become targets. But how does that sit with you as a Washington or Oregon fan or a Pac-12 fan? And for, for Beaver fans out there, Oregon State fans or Washington State fans who are listening across the footprint or Utah fans or Colorado fans or Arizona or Arizona State fans, uh, I want to know how you feel right now as it pertains to the silence that's coming from about those four to six schools that I mentioned there last. Uh, they've been very quiet. Um, the Big 12 uh, you know, uh, fans will come out and tell you that they would love to have Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado as part of the Big 12 conference, but mostly because it would be a sign that the Big 12 conference isn't disintegrating. And I don't think that those Pac-12 schools are falling over themselves to get into the Big 12. I think they're trying to figure out if the Big 12 is going to matter after the next uh, 29 days and the Pac-12's media rights get settled. I want to take some phone calls right off the top of the show. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Let's go to Tampa, Florida. HD's in Tampa, Florida. What's it like in Tampa today? Jeez, um, John, uh, it is uh, 95 and Ooh. heat index of 110. And Ooh. if you get on outside on a blacktop, you know, the reflection, you're looking at 120, brother. It is brutal. <laughs> You, it is it, brutal. You, let's just let's say hypothetically, you take a shower, you you uh, you get dressed, you walk outside, you feel like you need another shower. Yes, sir. At least, yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy, man. I, everybody says, I, I say, hey, look, it seems hotter this summer, and everybody says, well, you're just getting older. And I said, oh, <laughs> you know, shove it. Okay. Probably both. Probably both. What's on well, your mind? Well, I went to Carolina, the real Carolina in Chapel Hill, not that joke of a school in Columbia, okay? My uh, son went to FSU. My wife went to Miami. I think this is a great move. Given the current situation in the landscape, this is the move with the ACC and the PAC 10-12 merging in some sort or alliance in some sort, whatever you want to call it. I mean, just from... Just from my side of the country, or from your side of the country, you know, the ACC has that network. 91 million homes they're in, and 8 to 10 million a year per school. They have uh, the uh, Eastern Time Zone, which helps a lot. They have the footprint with the population and the recruits. They have all the sports that the PAC plays, okay? They have the academics. Okay, second, the first best academic conference in the country. Uh, it might change, uh, obviously, with UCLA and Southern Cal going to the Big Ten. Um, the towns, okay, and the cities you're going to enjoy. Uh, endowments are huge, and the flights, uh, the airports are easy to get to and cheaper because, obviously, they're bigger cities. But, um, you know, I, I, the, the thing here to me is, I don't see how the the Big 12 is um, even a player here. And uh, it, it is – even if you look at it that, uh, let's say, the PAC takes the Western Big 12 and the ACC takes the Eastern Big 12 schools, it, it is really weird, too, if you want to go that direction because I think both of them, if they got any sense, would want two schools in, in Texas. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And Florida State and Miami might give a lot of uh, have a lot of indigestion if they took Central Florida in over here. Right. West Virginia is awful. West Virginia is awful academically, with no TV sets, and uh, you know very poor state. Um, Cincinnati, yes, for the ACC. 
but then you get, uh, you know, for the PAC's perspective, um, obviously you would take Kansas and Kansas State, uh, you know, and then, like I said, uh, the, the, they would fight over the, the state of Texas with the recruits and the TV sets. Yeah. It's, it's the best play left, okay? Yeah, yeah. Here's, um, how, here's how I see it. I appreciate the call there in Tampa. Cool off. Um, I think the ACC Pac-12 partnership, let's call it that, entanglement, whatever you want to call it, shout out to uh, Jada and Will. Um, it, uh, I think that when you look at it, it makes sense for on a number of levels. First of all, the Pac-12 conference presidents and chancellors fashion themselves academics first. They are academics. They, I think, would have a harder time, frankly, with the Big 12 conference or the SEC uh, merging or partnering with those two conferences because they just don't see eye-to-eye uh, academically. But they, I do believe they look at North Carolina, they look at Duke, they look at Georgia Tech, and they go, hey, um, you know what, this is a nice academic uh, parallel for, for the Pac-12 conference. I think beyond that, you have a couple of things at play here. One is the, uh, the, uh, the, the current television contract that the ACC has um, would prohibit the, um, you know, a, a true merger of the two conferences. I mean, that's why I think they're using the terminology loose partnership, because if you, uh, if you are going to uh, have a true merger, then you would be tearing up the current media deal that the ACC has. And I think it would, uh, as, uh, as our media expert Bob Thompson, the former Fox president, said on yesterday's show, uh, it would be akin to uh, opening the barn door and hoping that the horses stay in the barn. But you've got Miami, you've got Clemson, and I think they would be running towards the SEC or the, and or the Big Ten trying to do what's best for themselves. So I think, um, it, you know, the other factor that's at play here, and the caller hit on it, and I wrote about this today at johnconzano.com. And if you want to know what's going on, you get it in real time. Uh, it shows up right to your email inbox right when I post. Uh, you get the alert, you get the email, and, you know, you're on top of things if you are subscribed. But the bottom line being, you know, this partnership between the ACC and the Pac-12 uh, is a no-brainer for the Pac-12. It brings you the television markets of New York and Boston and Atlanta and Washington, D.C., and as the caller just called in there from Tampa and Miami and Orlando and Charlotte and Pittsburgh and Raleigh and Greenville, and so you start to get into a larger footprint of television households when you look at the TV impact the total number of uh, televisions in that ACC region you're literally talking about uh, a footprint that brings you about 27 million 27.7 million households when you talk about just the uh, the you know the uh, the television market of the ACC in the Big 12 it's more like 12 million and there are some attractive pieces of the Big 12, but I don't think you would want, if you're the Pac-12 conference, having just lost Los Angeles, I don't think you would want to replace that with the Big 12. You, you're totally looking at the ACC here, if you can get that done, because that footprint gives you exposure to larger markets on the eastern part of the United States. Uh, and from the ACC standpoint, you get, uh, you get some inroads into California, into the Bay Area footprint, into Phoenix, into Seattle. Suddenly, if you're ESPN, who I do think ends up as the rights holder with the Pac-12 at the end of the day, uh, suddenly if you're ESPN, you have a nationwide network there. And it's very similar to what the Big Ten is trying to do getting into Los Angeles. I, I then at, at some point, though, 
and the caller mentioned, you know, poaching some of the Big 12 conference schools, and I think he's right on with that because I think what the Pac-12 and the ACC will do is they will say, look, uh, we're going to maintain ACC, you're going to maintain your current membership so you don't have to uh, uh, tear up your grant of rights agreement and, and open the barn door, so to speak. And the Pac-12, though, has a couple of opportunities with the L.A. schools out of the fold. I think the Pac-12 will pivot and look at Houston. I think they will look at Oklahoma State. I think they will look at Kansas and Kansas State. I think they will look at Baylor. I think that is the short list right now. If you are a Pac-12 conference fan, I think uh, you know adding Kansas to the Pac-12 and, and from a men's basketball standpoint, being able to create a Kansas-North Carolina, Kansas-Duke kind of series, Oregon playing North Carolina. You know, in women's college basketball, you have, you know, the ability to, you know, to match up Clemson and, and Oregon and Oregon State. You have the ability to go out and get Florida State on your schedule. And I think ESPN would just love some of those uh, partnership matchups that you could create. But I think further, you can really bolster the Pac-12 by not only grabbing that ACC television market through the partnership, but now you uh, make some inroads into the state of Texas with Baylor and Houston and, you know, possibly uh, Kansas and Kansas State. I think it's I think it is the plan right now if you are looking at what the Pac-12 is going to do. I also know that the Pac-12 conference athletic directors and presidents and chancellors have sort of hunkered down in the last 12 hours. Yesterday, they were much more talkative. Uh, today, they are much more reserved. I, I am not hearing as much chatter today. You have seen there is very little new news outside of maybe what I reported this morning. I had a couple little tidbits this morning at johnconzano.com, and John Wilner had some stuff yesterday and last night. But the speculation is all pointing towards uh, the, the idea that during this 30-day negotiating window, you know, uh, Fox and ESPN, who are the current rights holders in the Pac-12, have sort of this uh, exclusive 30-day window. There's 29 days left in it. If there's no agreement at the end of that 30-day period, then the conference is free to go out and seek other offers. But uh, if they reach an agreement with ESPN, they, they probably would have to wait for Fox to waive their rights or for Fox to give the Fox the right of refusal in that negotiation. It's an interesting uh, debate, and it's an interesting negotiation. Let's go to the phones. Mark is in Portland. Mark, welcome back. Hey, how you doing? Um, I just uh, found something a little interesting. Since 1998, the inception of the BCS, what do you think the Pac-12's record heads up with the ACC is? Uh, off the top of my head, i got to think the Pac-12's probably plays them pretty well. 29 wins and 11 losses. Yeah. And I'm not sure, but I, uh, Stanford won a BCS game when Oregon, during the Chip Kelly years, they went to, both went to BCS games, and then Oregon crushed Florida State, who was 27-0 and with Jameis Winston. So we've had pretty good success against the ACC. I'm not sure how that works out. We also have a better record than the Big Ten since the BCS inception, so... Those were all. Those were shocks to me. Just reading those statistics. Yeah, it it is a little bit interesting. I I wonder how many of those games were played, you know, against maybe ACC opponents that weren't top half of the conference. I don't know, but I just love the idea, Mark, of Clemson and how about Miami? How about an early season matchup with Oregon and Miami in 2025 with Mario Cristobal, 
uh, at Miami and Dan Lanning at Oregon. I'd pay to see that game. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's uh, right now uh, it's, it's the best. What, with what's going on to try to compete with the SEC and the Big Ten, I think this is a good move for the ACC and the Pac-10 or Pac-12 because I think if they set it up where they play a conference championship, I don't know how they can leave the champion out of two power conferences combined yeah. like that. So, they, but they have, you know. Avenue. Oh yeah, I don't know how they can either, but they'll find a way if they if they yeah, can. Yeah, they will. <laughs> Appreciate you, Mark. Uh, by the way, you playing golf today? I have a case of gout because I ate too on Fourth of July. What? <laughs> I got a. I, I I shouldn't be eating so much red meat, so I I, I do really well on that until the holidays, and then you just kind of yeah. lose your sense of thought. And I ate like five or six ribs during the course of the day, and uh, it shot me in the foot, so to speak. <laughs> you know what that is? That's called old age, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't have five ribs. Uh, think about Joey Chestnut. Isn't Joey Chestnut do a, a case of gout at some point? I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. Uh, we got a uh, listener in Eugene who is saying the Miami-Oregon game could be called the Crystal Bowl. Uh, I like that, play on Mario Crystal Bowl. I want your phone calls. How does the ACC entanglement or partnership or alliance strike you. I don't mind if you're gun shy. All phone calls are welcome. You got the bald face truth. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'll take a bunch of your phone calls uh, coming up bottom of the hour. We're going to talk to a guest that's going to look really into the history of the Pac-12 Conference. What can you learn from the history of the Pac-12 Conference? Mark Shipper of Fifth Down College Football will be joining us to talk about that. Coming up at 4 o'clock, Greg Biggins will join us. 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Analyst. I've got questions for Biggins. I want to know, from Biggins' standpoint, what he makes of the recruiting impact, short-term and long-term. Will this hurt the other Pac-12 schools short-term that there's some uncertainty right now? Uh, and will it hurt long-term that they won't be playing games in Southern California? Remember all those news stories when Oregon and Oregon State were going down to Southern California and beating the snot out of USC on USC's home field? Uh, all those news stories, the L.A. Times, everybody writing about, oh, they're doing it with Southern California kids. Uh, will that will that change because those Southern California kids will no longer be able to play games in the Pac-12 conference that land them in and around Southern California? Let's go to Tony in Oregon City. Phone line's 503-417-7575. Tony in Oregon City, go ahead. Hi, John. Um, I'm curious on... What's going to happen to these commissioners' jobs? Are they going to be leading the, the big power conferences, or will they just be working themselves out of a job if all these schools get together? Yeah, I think you're still going to need a co commissioner of the ACC. You're going to need a commissioner of the Pac-12. Obviously, you'd need a commissioner of the Big Ten and the SEC. They're not Kevin Warren in the Big Ten and Greg Sankey of the SEC are not going anywhere. But I think under the scenario that I think we're going to end up in, which is partnership between the Pac-12 and the ACC, 
and the Pac-12 pursuing some Big 12 uh, members who may wobble a little bit in this, in this, um, you know, in this, uh, in this, uh, m you know, mindset. But I, I kind of feel like uh, you've got an opportunity here for the Pac-12 and the ACC to both come out of this. You know, it, it doesn't put them on par with the Big Ten. It really doesn't. But it gets you in the in the neighborhood. You know, it gets you in the ballpark. It gets you in the conversation when you have the potential in football to play Miami and Clemson and Notre Dame. And let me just hypothetically throw something out that one of the Pac-12 ADs threw at me this morning. The conversation centered around what becomes of the conference championship game. And the idea is that the Pac-12 teams will, by and large, play each other, play a normal conference schedule. Let's just say the year is 2025. They're playing a normal conference schedule. The ACC does the same damn thing. But they would play a couple of crossover games. Like maybe everybody plays one crossover game. Maybe Oregon gets to play Miami. Maybe uh, Oregon State plays Pitt. Uh, you know, maybe Washington is playing um, against Clemson. Like who knows how, you know, how it goes. But you get one crossover game. At the end of the rainbow, the Pac-12 champion and the ACC champion would meet in Las Vegas in what would have normally been the conference title game. But now it's an opportunity for the champion of the ACC and the champion of the Pac-12 to validate each other and play while the, co the College Football Playoff Selection Committee is watching. And I'll go one further. What if on the same day, the second-place team of the ACC and the second-place team of the Pac-12 are also playing? If it's a 12-team playoff, and you're trying to get as many teams into the playoff as possible, I do think that, that normally that first week of December window where the Pac-12 was playing that title game becomes an interesting opportunity to showcase your first and second place teams. So, like, if it were last year, under that example, like, you might have, you know, uh, Utah playing against Clemson, and you might have Oregon playing against Miami in a hypothetical 2025 uh, game on that same weekend, and then if there's 12 playoff spots available, um, you know there is a uh, uh, there's an opportunity there. Um, let's go to Lance, who's calling in from Lincoln, Nebraska. That's Big Ten country now. Lance, what, welcome to the show. Hey, John, how are you? Good. Good. You know, a lot of this um, uh, to me just kind of seems like a lot of window dressing to sort of not have a lot of change and I don't know um so I, I guess this alliance that people keep talking about an alliance but what's beyond that or behind that is what's important if it's one game all the way down where does that get you in terms of money I think it you might be jumping a little bit <coughs> media guy lost him dang D didn't quite know where he was going Steven you get an idea of where he was going with that no, not really. Yeah, no idea. Well, look, we're gonna we're gonna take uh, an interview coming up with Mark Shipper of Fifth Down College Football. He's gonna talk kind of about the history of the Pac-12 conference and maybe what we can learn. Then coming up top of the hour, Greg Biggins will join us to talk recruiting. But in the meantime, I want to go to Mike in Portland. Mike, what's on your mind? Say, so, John, you know they got a saying in, in Proverbs that where there's no vision, the people perish. And the people in the Pac-12 lack vision. You know, they said that when the UFC 
uh, hire Lincoln Riley, that should have been the sign right there that they weren't going to stay in the Pac-12. Because uh, if Lincoln Riley had stayed in the Pac-12, he'd be winning championships from now for the next 10 years. So it's not championship that USC wants. They want that money. That's why they went over to uh, the Big Ten. So you guys are still hollering championships and play. Hey, that ain't a big deal. It's all about the money. And, John, another thing that gets me about the people here in Oregon, you guys put Phil Knight way up there like he's some kind of uh, brainiac when it comes to sport. Phil Knight is no more than a pattern maker. He makes patterns to make clothes and shoes. He do not regulate or have a big uh, say about what's going on in sports. He don't know that much about sports. He know how to dress a football team. He's good at that because he don't have no vision. So you guys give him credit that he don't deserve. Come on. Nick, he built one of the biggest brands on planet Earth. Like, he might be the most influential person in sports in history on planet Earth. You can't say he doesn't have vision. Come on. He's a pattern maker, John. He makes clothes and shoes. That's how he got famous. He didn't get famous, John, for navigating football teams for oh, hiring. Look, I don't know, but you got to give him credit, Mike, for, for building the global brand that is Nike. and the It was marketing genius. I, I would say it's more marketing than it is pattern making. Well, John, if what you say is true, then then they didn't learn nothing from, from Cristobal hiring. He, he was a line coach. What did they do? They turned it right back around and had, hired another line coach. You know, same thing. They keep making these same mistakes. The Ducks, man, don't nobody want the Ducks, man. You oh, know, I, it, I agree with you there. I don't think... I don't think the Big Ten wants Oregon. I don't think the SEC wants Oregon. I think if they wanted them, they wouldn't have kept the USC-UCLA thing a secret from them. You know, I talked to uh, administrators at both USC and UCLA in the last week. Uh, they both told me that, that Oregon never came up uh, when they were talking with the Big Ten. Oregon's na- Now, it doesn't mean that they weren't interested in Oregon at all. It just means they never came up. I don't think there were plans at all for the Big Ten to entertain Oregon or the SEC. All right, we're going to talk some history of the Pac-12, Pac-10, Pac-8. We'll talk about it uh, coming up. you got the BFT. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Look, I know there's a lot of angst in the Pac-12 footprint about what is happening with the Pac-12 conference. Where will your teams be playing? Uh, The Pac-12 has been through some of this before over the years. The Pac-12 has undergone different, uh, uh, different, uh, basically, there have been a number of teams that have come into the conference. It started as the Pac-8 conference. But if you really look at the history of the Pac-12 conference, it was founded in downtown Portland uh, all those years ago. I think it was 1915. I don't know anybody was there. 
But in 1915, there was a meeting at the uh, Imperial Hotel in downtown Portland, and this thing, uh, you know, found some life. Uh, I have talked about sort of the birth of the Pac-12 conference, but we want to go to a historian when we talk about the original, uh, you know, Pac-12 conference. And I want to go to Mark Shipper, who runs a website called FifthDownCollegeFootball.com, and he's joining us now. Mark, let's talk some history, man. I've been reading your posts, and there's yes, just sir. a ton of history here. Let's go back. Like, what is it that makes the history of the Pac-12 interesting to you? Well, the Pac-12 is an interesting league because it's always kind of had one foot in and one foot out of major college football, which we're seeing today. So it's always been known as an academically prestigious league. It's always been known as kind of a rule-following league. And there's always been a very interesting dynamic between its schools because there's an unusual mix between big urban population centers and rural universities. And over the years, that's caused conflicts. I would argue that what's going on today is in part related to the situation of each of the universities. Pacific Coast Conference founded in 1915, downtown Portland, Imperial Hotel, doesn't exist anymore. I got this neighbor who's an older guy, he's a retiree, and he says, oh yeah, I remember the hotel. I remember when it was then. I said, huh. you know, this is this is a story that has a real Portland flavor to it and really is of the Pacific Northwest, but when you look at sort of the original schools, you had Idaho in there, you had Montana in there, USC was in there, UCLA was in there, original members, um, and uh, certainly Washington, Washington State, Oregon State, and Oregon, but, you know, this is a, a conference that I think has undergone some changes over the years, Mark. Um, you know, how yeah. nervous should people be right now? I think everyone's nervous right now. I think individual schools and leagues are nervous. I think fans are nervous uh, because they're seeing the game that they love being broken up in kind of violent ways and reorganized. So the Pac-12 should be nervous, but... I like the guy they have in charge, George Klyavkov. I think had he not been brought in after the torpedoes had kind of hit the hull, I think he could have captained this ship to safer waters. But I think he's a great guy to have in charge now. If, if the Pac-12 can keep itself together and get through the next sort of period before college football finishes its reorganization, I think they'll be okay. But there's going to be a fight, and I think the, the, the Big 12, Pac-12, and then potentially this – Alliance redux with the ACC from the Pacific Coast to the Atlantic Coast. Um, whatever happens there is going to is going to determine what goes on afterward. Yeah, I, I you know I I know that uh, you know there's a saying you know you'd rather have uh, loved and lost than never loved at all. But you know they got burned right. by the Big Ten Conference, and here comes an, another alliance. I don't blame people for going. Oh no 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 no! I don't want another one of those. But uh, an alliance between the ACC and the Pac-12, I think, is really interesting. doesn't have great geography, but I think it has great potential. Yeah, I agree with that. When you look at the map of college football and what's happening now between the leagues, you're, what you're really looking at, and I, I encourage people to find maps. There's a bunch of them on Twitter with the conferences showing in their alignments. What you're really looking at is a philosophical approach to college football. Leagues are pairing off in the way they've always approached college football. The Big Ten and Pac-12 have gone together many times. 
if you look at the SEC, it's a super region. All those schools have always had the same outlook on college football, which is just win it all, baby, and do whatever it takes to do it. The ACC and the Pac-12, what the, the remnants of it, have a lot of philosophical similarities in terms of high-quality universities, caring about athletics outside of football and men's basketball. And they got a bunch of just great brand names. So even if it's just for a, um interim period to get through a, a certain phase, I do agree with you that the Pac-12 and ACC is a really interesting pairing. Mark Shipper is our guest, fifth down college football. What have you learned in doing the research that you have done in the last few years as part of your website? Well, you know, what we're talking about, one of the most fascinating things to me is is the thesis I have that the modern conference commissioner, the Klyavkovs of the world, the Kevin Warrens, the Sankeys, was actually born in sort of the fiery death of the PCC, which is the direct ancestor of the Pac-12. Prior to that happening, conference commissioners were sheriffs, policemen, internal affairs liaisons between leagues and the NCAA. They were hired to investigate their bosses' businesses, essentially. And so you can see quickly, as college football grew as a business, how that became a terrible conflict of interest. You brought a guy in to essentially find out what you're doing wrong and report you for it. So the, when the PCC blew up, it had a ton to do with the zealousness of the commissioner, which the league had told him to do, to his credit. He did what the PCC told him to do, but he did it too well. And they had an incredible scandal in the late 1950s. The whole thing burned to the ground. And Phoenix Light from the ashes, the new commissioner rose. Uh, they brought in Tom Hamilton, who was a star at Navy, on Navy's 1926 national title team. And they didn't even call him a commissioner. They called him an executive. And they told him explicitly, you are not here to investigate our programs. You're here to promote our programs, promote our league, and you're here to help us generate revenue with our athletics, specifically football. So you can see the direct line from that PCC to Pac-12 to Larry Scott to George Klyavkov. That's a direct line, and it, it runs through the Pacific League. What happens to the role of a conference commissioner as this thing evolves into two mega conferences or a partnership with the ACC and the Pac-12. How necessary is it for you to have a conference commissioner? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, right now it's definitely necessary. You need a point man. You need a guy who's getting everybody together on the same page, deciding what assets you have, what you know, allied strategy you want to embark on, and then he, he's got to be the guy, the general, leading it. So right now, I'd call it extremely important. As we go forward, it, it could turn out there's going to be some type of czar with sort of uh, lieutenant-like underlings, different kind of positions. I'm not exactly sure on that, but I know right now you want a conference commissioner who's a connected dealmaker and someone who's very savvy about the sports, media, entertainment marketplace because, as you said many times in uh, all your great pieces on this, Television is is uh, driving this thing right now. Give Media. Me an, yeah, give me an idea because, you know, when we go back into, like, some of the research over the history of this conference, you know, it didn't used to be about TV, but, it, it, you know, suddenly it is, and it's about 7.30 kickoffs, and it's about now alliances, and forget geography, you know, you'll fly 2,000 miles to, to put on a game because we're in an entertainment world now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a major change. I think people, you know, TV, the NCAA took control of TV in 1952. Prior to that, 
University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame had been the only real TV players, and they deeply resented the NCAA taking the rights away and centralizing TV. From that point, it's continued to grow. I, I sort of set a clock running on the era we're in now at two different places. One is 1984, the deregulation of TV in the Supreme Court. And number, and number two, well, from that point on, is basically when television consolidated control of college football's regular season, the conference networks grew up, et cetera. And then 1998 at the BCS. And leading to the BCS was the Bowl Coalition in the early 90s and the Bowl Alliance, and then the BCS. And for me, the BCS was television's crowbar into the postseason. They jacked open that door and they got in. And they bought up the postseason. So now they have the regular season. Now they have the postseason. When the college football playoff came along, I look at that as checkmate for TV. Now they, now they have everything, and the schools need every penny they can get from them. So we're in a situation now where it's um, what you just said. It, it's a full-bore entertainment property. We're talking to Mark Shipper. Fifth Down College Football is his website. I really encourage you to check that out. He does a – Really good job getting on the road. Uh, you were out on the road in the last year. I know we had you on the show, and you were out kind of touring the country. What What did you find out there? Give me a couple of the highlights, because not everybody gets to be out and go see games and tailgate and kind of get the flavor of so many college towns. Yeah, you know what the, the, biggest, the biggest overall thing is this country loves college football. We see a lot of stuff in, in, you know, popular media and in the culture that suggests there's a lot of uh, divisions and difficulties everywhere, and there are those things. But there are certain things we agree on, and boy, do we love them. And college football from Seattle to Eugene to uh, Los Angeles to the SEC to the Northeast, foot, college football has a special connection to this country, which is my, my thesis in the book I'm working on about college football is that it is inseparable from American history and culture. So everywhere you go in this country, basically, and it fades in and out in certain places and um, all of that, but essentially it's just a, it's a really loved game and people are really passionate about it. It's almost like a, it comes down family lines kind of thing. Yeah, and I think it, it's really, you know, I've been – to like a spring game at LSU and it's a cultural experience, right? Like the band comes yeah. in and people are friendly. Where were the where did you find the friendliest fans? Cuz I know fans probably were happy to see you everywhere, Mark, but where did you find the friendliest yeah. fans? The friendliest fans, um, you know, I didn't have any bad experiences. Uh, I was in Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge people are great. Very welcoming, very warm. Um, I had I had fun in Tallahassee at Florida State. Mm. Um, I had a great time at UCLA outside the Rose Bowl. A lot of people, you know, they've seen the empty stadiums and the difficulties UCLA has. It's a, it's a special case for certain. UCLA has a great tailgating team out in front of the Rose Bowl and a lot of people who you welcome in and welcome you in and have a good time. Um, yeah, I mean, and I, I, oh, I should say Fayetteville, Arkansas. Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, I'll, I'll make that the last one. Fayetteville, Arkansas was a sensational time. Wonderful people. They love the Hogs. It's an institution in that state. And Saturday, I was I was there, fortunately, when they upset Texas at home and stormed the field. It was the second week of my, my odyssey last fall. And uh, that was one of the great experiences I had in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The, the changes we're watching in college football, my fear is that we are uh, looking at a system that 
is do, is being changed to not for the better. Um, help put that to rest. Can this end up good for college football, everything we're seeing, Mark? It can end up good, but I'm not going to lie about things being lost. Uh, but things have been being lost for a long time now, and nothing is going to stay the same forever. I tell people all the time, if I had an opportunity and I could wind college football back, I would run the sequence between – uh, like 1980, I wasn't even born yet, through 1997, which was the end of the, 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 the end of the old system, which we call bowls and polls. You played your bowl games. They took yep. a poll January 2nd and crowned a national champion. So that's, that's gone. It's a different world, but it's still college football. We're still going to have a lot of the rivalries. We're still going to have Saturday. And, who knows what happens with this playoff? A lot of people are down on an expanded playoff in postseason. It could save the Bulls. The Bulls are in big, big trouble right now. And it could end up being a good thing. So I encourage people to stick with it and keep watching your teams and your games and see how it goes. You might like it more than you think you're going to. Give me an idea. You say maybe it'll save the Bulls. Give me kind of a, uh, a theory that that, that works out in because I like that. Yeah, well, the Bulls, the Bulls, it's interesting. The, the, the series that led, there's always parallels in college football. The series that led to the BCS was the Bulls dying in about 1990. The Bulls were, were going to drop dead. Their TV ratings were down. Their payouts were down. They started taking on sponsors, and they lost their cachet. TV was begging for a playoff. So that's how we got going to the BCS, and the BCS revived the postseason. Not for long. We had to go to the playoff. But I look at it like this. Here's the example I use. If they incorporate the bowls into the postseason and we're playing uh, knockout games in the bowls rather than just some random venue or on campus the whole time, we're going to renew interest in those bowl games. If last year's Peach Bowl between Michigan State and Pitt with uh, Kenny Walker and uh, Pitt's uh, great quarterback drafted in the first round, I'm drawing Blake on his name right now. If they're playing in that game and that is an, uh, a win or go home game, I think that Peach Bowl brings in millions more viewers. It was one of the lowest-rated New Year's Six games on the docket last year. I think millions more people watch that game because both those guys play, their best players play, the award winners are in the game, and the winner matters. So I think you have to look at it like that going forward, this idea of expensive exhibitions that count for nothing, essentially. And I say that with all due respect. I love the bowl games, but they don't really count for anything other than a, 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 a win in the, in the win column or a loss, uh, they need to be brought back to life in some way. So hopefully that's, that's a hypothesis on how that can happen. I like that. All right, Mark Shipper, you can catch him at Fifth Down College Football. I appreciate you joining us. Good stuff, man. Hi, right, John. Appreciate you. Talk soon. There he is. Check out his website. Does a good job. Coming up, we'll have our big splash. Top of the hour, Greg Biggins, 24-7 Sports National recruiting editor will be joining us to talk about the impact on recruiting. If you love college football, leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anybody know if uh, the Blazers are for sale today? Did the Blazers issue a news release, Stephen, Sean? Uh, yeah, not that I saw, but, uh, you know, we, you never know. It changes day by day, I guess. I guess we should ask them every day. Are yeah. you for sale now? Yeah, exactly. How about now? How about now? 
How many more minutes, Dad? How many more minutes till we get get there? That's what we should be like. Uh, Jody Allen yesterday, if you didn't uh, catch the news, uh, issued two news releases, identical news release that went through the Seahawks, one from the Blazers. I actually like the format of the Seahawks news release better. Did you guys happen to see the actual copy, the email from the Blazers, the email from the Seahawks? Yeah, I did. The Blazer one, I agree with you, was a little weird. It was it was normal, but the Seahawks one, like, look at what they did on, if you go to Seahawks Twitter, just just humor me here and go to Seahawks Twitter and look at the release from yesterday, how cool it looks. It's like, uh, it almost looks like it was faxed on Twitter. And it's got kind of, looks like it comes out of like the dot matrix world. I, I kind of like that. I was like, that's a little bit of style. I used to cover the Raiders back in the day, and uh, the Raiders used to issue their news releases that way. They would send them out via fax. But if you look at the official Twitter for the Seahawks. Looking uh, at it now. You see it? Tell, yeah. me, tell me that's not cool. It's it looks cool. like it's a telegram. It's nice and clean, yeah. It feels like it's just a battle of their, uh, what, their communications teams, and the yeah. Seahawks may have came out on top here. I think the Seahawks, it's it's just a better font. It's it's just a nice, it's a nice little setup there. I, why do two news releases? Why not, why not just do one? Come on. Well, John, do we... you have a favorite font? I know font is a big thing. There's a lot of people that are font man. snobs. Are I you just, a, you know, use a few font snob? As long as it doesn't look like it was done by, like, a fourth grader, then, then I'm good with it. Um uh, today's uh, big splash. Do we have time for the benchmark, or should I just say this is the big splash? This is the big splash. How about this one? Brittany Griner uh, is expressing some gratitude, and uh, Brittany Griner's wife is uh, had a phone call with President Joe Biden and says that she's optimistic about uh, the possibility of Brittany Griner getting home. Uh, I think that's going to be an ongoing story, but uh, Brittany Griner's wife is hopeful after having a phone call with President Biden. I just think we send in our our special ops team and get her out of there. Like, I want to see that movie after it's over, once Brittany Griner is out of Russia. Let's get that done. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Hour one in the books. We're into hour two. The show flies, man. When I'm having fun on this show, it flies by. Good stuff in hour one. Grab a podcast if you missed it. Hour two, we're going to take a forward-looking approach at recruiting. How much has recruiting been impacted by what we're seeing with USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten? Is there, are there short-term impacts? Are recruits suddenly looking around going, well, wait a minute, I don't want to go to Oregon. I don't want to go to Oregon State because they're not going to play in L.A. Are kids thinking that way? I guess that's what I'm asking. And what about the long-term implications? How much is recruiting factoring right now in these conference alignments? Greg Biggins, I think he's the best. He is the national recruiting analyst for 24-7 sports. He's also a man of the world. Sometimes when we call him, he's just mowed his lawn or he's, you know, his kids are, uh, you know, he's hanging out with his kids. He's a normal person is what I'm saying. Greg Biggins, what have you been doing today? <laughs> Not a lot. I wish I had something exciting to say. You know, I did this or that, hiked up something. But, no, i just been relaxing, <laughs> took a kid to the – I mean, something's – got four kids, something's always going wrong, right? Oh. So I took one to the doctor, had a little strep throat, 
Um, yeah. But that, that's the most exciting thing I've, I've done today, unfortunately, is just little little throat culture stuff. It's like Us Magazine when they're like when they go, they're like us. They pump gas. They get coffee. That's, <laughs> that's like your life, Greg Biggins. I am I am exact the most regular human being you'll ever see in your life. People would be stunned how boring my life really is outside of the kids causing a lot of chaos. Everything else, I'm just like everyone else. Biggins, let's talk recruiting. Uh, you see USC, UCLA going to the Big Ten. What's your first thought when that happens last Thursday? That news breaks. Man, so, so I was I was stunned. I thought it was a joke, honestly. Uh, you know, Brendan Huffman and, and myself and uh, Blair Angulo, we kind of have a little our cool little group chat, and I, we always kind of fire stuff at each other. I thought it was a joke, and I was like, what? Uh, I, I think i, I got to watch my words. I don't want to sound like I'm insulting anybody. I, mean, I, I think USC's built for it, right? They're kind of a, you know, obviously they've invested a ton in, in Lincoln and, and getting that program, you know, built up. But my first thought was, Man, UCLA, that's, you know, the Big Ten's a different animal. Are they willing? And, again, I'm not saying anything differently than all the message board posters on Bruin and Port Online would probably say, but my first thought was kind of like, okay, they're going to get this influx of money. How much is going to go to the to the football, basketball program, and how much is going to go to the new science department, the Spanish department, you know, foreign language? That You know what I'm saying? Like, my first thought was, okay, UCLA, I think it's going to take that money and actually invest it in sports or use it to try to be like Stanford and, and pump up that. So, you know, I, I think I think it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated. I think they'll be fine. UCLA will be fine in basketball. I think USC football-wise, it's going to be exciting to kind of see what they do uh, amidst some of those, you know, elite recruiting powerhouses like Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State. Um, Iowa is very good. Michigan State's coming up. I mean, it's a, it's a really good conference overall. overall. And um, so that was my first thought was USC football should be fun. UCLA football, I hope they invest properly. I hope Chip gets a little more aggressive recruiting-wise. Otherwise, they might really struggle. Yeah, and when you talk about that, you know, give us an idea from a recruiting standpoint because those two schools will tout, hey, we're in this hotbed of talent in recruiting talent. But I have to think the Big Ten schools are also going, well, guess what? We now get to come to L.A. It's already happening. Yeah, no, it's already happening. You're hearing kids say, hey, I got a call from, you know, Michigan State saying, hey, you come here. Now you can go home at least once a year, right? Obviously, we don't know what the schedules are like, but you have to assume, you know, a lot of these schools are going to probably have at least one road trip to play USC or UCLA. So, yeah, whereas USC and UCLA can recruit Midwest kids and say, hey, you know, you can come to USC and still be, you know, play several games kind of with your friends and family back in the Midwest. Those schools were able to do that, and they already are, and and we'll see. You know, we'll we'll see how much of a factor that is. And you know, the reality is, it's you know, if you want to go to Michigan, um, you're going to go to Michigan. I don't I don't know if you're going to be swayed, you know, pro or, or con if you can come home to LA one one time, maybe every you know every year. I, I just don't know. Um, I'm more, and I don't want to skip ahead. I'm I'm kind of more fascinated about what the local kids out west are going to think about what's going to become of the other Pac-12 schools, right? So that's what I'm more fascinated by. Yeah, and what about, you know, we've watched over the years Oregon perform very well in that Southern California market and, and go beat USC using a bunch of Southern California kids that you covered as they grow up. Does this close the door on Oregon's, you know, pipeline, I guess, to Southern California, or is it to be determined? I don't think it closes any doors because I feel like those school, uh, those kids, excuse me, were choosing Oregon 
because they loved Oregon. You know, they loved the coaching staff. They want to win. They loved the facilities, the uniform combinations. They loved all that. So it wasn't just, you know, hey, I'm going to go to Oregon because Oregon's going to come and, and play, you know, SC, UCLA a couple times while I'm, you know, going to college. I think if Oregon was located, you know, even further, you know, maybe more centrally located, I think kids are still going to Oregon. You know what I mean? Oregon is a national brand right now. They're able to go into Florida and get kids. They're able to go into the Midwest and get kids. They're able to go anywhere and get kids because, again, they have an aggressive staff. They have – well, these kids – people talk about tradition, right? And I'm, I'm a tradi- yeah. I've said this a thousand times probably the last week. I, I like to see the schools like USC and Texas and Florida State and Notre Dame be good. I think it makes football fun if they're relevant. I think that when these kids that are now in high school, were, when they were young – Oregon was the team, right? DeAnthony Thomas and Marcus Mariota, those were the guys that these kids grew up watching. So I think right now, whether Oregon is in the Pac-12, Pac-10, the Big 12, big I don't think kids care. They will still go to Oregon because that staff recruits maniacally. They have a great brand to sell, and, and they're going to be really good for, for the foreseeable future. Greg Biggins, National Recruiting Analyst, 24-7 Sports, is with us. Long-term big picture – Let me just throw some hypotheticals at you. Let's just say that it is the Pac-12 or what's left of it in a partnership with the ACC, meaning we're going to see some games where Clemson or Florida State or Miami end up playing Utah or Oregon or Washington. Can that help the Pac-12 or is it, you know, sort of like, you know, hey, it's – it's neither great nor bad, or how do you see sort of a partnership where you might see an occasional ACC opponent playing a Pac-12 team? And I just, I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being naive. I just don't see it as being that much of a of a deal changer. You know what I mean? Like if you're a kid, right, and and you really like a certain school, is it going to be when you have your top five factors? And you, you and I have talked a lot about NIL. I think that plays a bigger role. You know, mm. coach relationship plays a bigger role. Lo- location where you're going to be living for most of your time is going to play a bigger role. Hopefully, academics still matters a little bit. That's going to play a role. Dev chart's still going to play a role. I just I can't think of the kid that's going to sit there and say, yeah, I'm not sure if I can go to that school, but you know what? They're going to play Clemson, so I'm going to, I'm going to go. I'm, now I'm going to go to that school because yeah. of who they're going to be playing against once out of every couple of years. I just, I just don't see it. And so, yeah, I think you can still sell it. Like I said, I think, you know, UCLA, USC, for example, you know, they should be able to have success going into the Midwest and recruiting kids because they can say, hey, we're going to be coming to, to play a lot of away games in your neck of the woods this, this you know this is kind of the best of both worlds for you right you want to come out west anyway you didn't want to lose you know leave your family you didn't want them to want them to be able to see you play and now they can kind of still see you play i think that'll that'll carry some weight but i just don't see you know the kid making a, a, a life altering decision because oh we might get to play florida state one time i just i just don't see it but i could be wrong i'm so i'm I'm curious to see what's going to happen in a few years well i think one of the things that you get that i don't get at all is you get a glimpse into kind of the mentality or the thinking that these recruits have. And so I think sometimes the rest of us get caught up on stuff that matters to us. But you know what these kids that are being recruited, you know what's important to them. And I think you're speaking to that. So I think it's really valuable. What about the short term right now? Do you find that you are – it has like the last few days done anything with – UCLA, USC recruiting, Pac-12 recruiting that, that jumps out to you, or does it feel like it's just status quo? Right now, I, I still feel like it's status quo. Now, this is, I don't know, this is interesting. So I talked to a kid, and I'm not going to give a name, but he's, you know, he's a kid in, in our top 247 
who was going to commit to Cal, and he's backed off that hmm. because he's not sure where, where Cal is going to be. So, where I, you know, I, I might make light of the fact of, oh, you know, going to play the game against Clemson, that's not going to be a deal-breaker. I, I do think kids want to know, hey, is, is the conference I'm going to be playing, is it still even going to be a Power 5 conference? I still think that's, that's going to matter. So, whereas, you know, we can kind of make light of some, you know, some things, I, I do think the schools like a Cal, um, you know, we'll see, you know, an, an Oregon State, a Washington State. You know, Oregon State's doing really well right now. And so, so far, I haven't seen them affected at all. Uh, but, again, you know, you're going to probably hear other schools will negative recruit and say, you don't want to go to Oregon State. Too. They might be playing in a Mountain West Conference type deal, right? I mean, you just don't know. But if it's possible to, to hurt a school, people will say whatever they want, even if they're just making stuff up. So, I think people do want to know, okay, what conference will my school be playing in? Is there still going to be a Power 5 conference? Is, is for the, these four or five Pac-12 schools, are they going to merge with the Big 12? Are we doing something with the ACC? Uh, or do we still have a chance to go into the Big 10 if you're talking Oregon, if you're talking Washington, right? I think that's still kind of making some people maybe have a little bit of, a little bit of trepidation. But, um, you know, overall, I, I think right now it's, it's still, you're still seeing kind of business as usual for a lot of these recruits. Greg Biggins, 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Analyst, is with us. Uh, you mentioned Oregon State. I did notice Jonathan Smith was busy on social media, picked up uh, a couple of offensive linemen, a wide receiver, a defensive back. What is happening with Oregon State recruiting? Now they're doing well. They're doing really well, right? I don't I – don't, I mean, I don't I, – I wish I could say, well, it's because of this. But, uh, I mean, I think from the, the moment he got there, Jonathan and his staff, they've always done a really nice job of being, you know, they grind hard. They're they're very smart. They don't go after guys they don't have a chance with. There's always a saying in recruiting: you got to know who you can and can't get. Don't waste your time on kids that you cannot get. So I think they're being pretty strategic, and uh, they're doing a nice job. I mean, I I really like the guys they're bringing. I love the quarterback, Aiden Childs. I mean, for me, he is a high level power five guy. Who you know, I was at the Elite Eleven last week. And he would have been he would have been throw for throw with a lot of those guys. I think he's a top twenty guy just looking at his skill set. You know, he's not even close to where he's going to be. So you know, in the past we've kind of said, oh, Oregon State they're going to hit the portal really hard. Maybe going to bring in only like eight or nine high school kids. They're going to bring in ten to fifteen portal kids. And I still like that strategy of going portal heavy for schools like Oregon State, uh, who traditionally aren't going to get the the high level guys out of high school, but they can get those guys maybe you know on the bounce back through the portal, but. No, man, right now, Jonathan and, and that staff, they're, they're doing really well. So I'm, I'd love to see it. We're talking to Greg Biggins, 24-7 Sports. Stanford and Cal, it's interesting. You mentioned the one recruit backing off of Cal. Uh, I have heard you know, some different things, some wild things in the last 24 hours about what could happen to them. You know, it, it ranges from, hey, they'll stay in the Pac-12 or maybe the Big Ten would want Stanford more than it would want Oregon to, hey, maybe Stanford and Cal will just not play football a decade from now. Um, you know, the recruiting that David Shaw has done, how different is that Stanford recruiting experience than maybe the rest of college football or the rest of the most of college football? Yeah, Stanford is unique, but you know, but he's coming off, you know, a, I, I want to say, a, a, you know, a top thirty. Now, because of our rankings, now we're kind of putting portal, you know, rankings into the mix. I'm not sure where they they, they finished up, but Stanford had a top twenty-five, top thirty class last year, and they're doing pretty well this year too. You know, Stanford, I feel like it's still Stanford. Kids are still gonna if you can get into Stanford, and you've cleared admissions and you took a visit, their hit rate is probably higher than every school in the country. 
and I'm not even exaggerating. I know, I know one year, a few years back, they were like 15 for 15, meaning if you took your official visit to Stanford and you were academically cleared through their admissions process, they got every single one of their guys that they tripped in. They, they didn't lose anybody. It, it's, it's remarkable how they do it. And, and I think, I don't think that's going to ever change. And I've heard some stuff like you have, you're, you're way more dialed in, but I, I heard some crazy, you know, hey, they, they might just join the Ivy League. I, I just yeah. don't see that happening. I still think Stanford is, they're elite, not just, you know, in, in so many different sports, right? I mean, you know, I, I think Stanford's built to be, you know, in, you know, in a number of different conferences. They're competitive in, in every single sport. Not so, you know, when you and I were younger, John, they were basketball, man. They had some really good basketball teams, you know, back in the Mark Madsen days. But, you know, they kind of slipped a little bit there. But Stanford is still highly competitive in just about every other sport and, and football. So, I don't see them just kind of not having a team in 10 years. I have, I have not heard that one yet. That's kind of absurd to me. But, yeah, where do you place Stanford, right? Where do you place college? You know, big. I heard, that I, you know, there was talk, hey, Notre Dame, Stanford. We want to make sure the Big Ten still has a, a nice little academic, you know, side of it too. So does Stanford make more sense than, a, than an Oregon Washington? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of fun to speculate, right? I, I, but I, I really have no idea where they're going to put some of these teams. Yeah, I think what's going to happen, and let me just float this to you. You tell me if this helps or hurts the Pac-12. I think they're going to have a partnership with the ACC, and they'll band together. And I think the Pac-12 will try to replace UCLA and USC with somebody like Baylor, Houston, Kansas, Kansas State, because in basketball you'd love to have Kansas. But I think they're going to try to do that and then just try to position themselves as the number three as you know, the Big Ten and the SEC go forward. I think you and I have talked before, Greg, about what kids really value. How big is being in the playoff to these recruits? I, I do think it's big, you know, and I think that kind of kind of goes back to what I said earlier about they want to make sure if they're going to be in the Pac-10, Pac-12, whatever, is it still going to be considered a Power Five, or is it going to be, you know, kind of brought down to Mountain West level? And I'm not insulting the Mountain West. I, I love half of those schools, SDSU and Fresno and Boise State. So what you, you, what you just said, the scenario with the Kansas schools, I mean, that works for me. I think that's, I think that's doable. And, again, you, you get, like I said, you get the basketball element on that side, and you get the football element on, on that side also. You kind of get the best of both worlds. And, you know, I just – I, I don't necessarily love the idea of having, like, these three power conferences and then everyone else kind of just not really relevant. You know, I kind of miss the old days where you had, you know, and I know we'll never get that back, but you had, like, five or six power conferences and, and all these different bowl games all mattered. Um, but, shoot, man, if, if it's the best you can we can get, you know, with a, a Big 12 slash Pac-12 kind of united together, you got your eight SEC in the Big Ten, if that's, if that's the best we got, I guess I'll take that. It's just uh, it's going to get, kind of get hard for me to get used to seeing some of these teams in all these radical conferences. It's going to I mean it's I didn't see it happening you know a couple of years ago, but I guess kind of the sign of the times right now that we're going for. Yeah, it, you know what it feels like to me. It was like you know I grew up when the Houston Astros were in the National League West, and then it, you know it all changed. Or I had a lunch pail had twenty eight helmets on it, Biggins, when I was a kid, and that yeah. was that was the NFL and all of a sudden it was like what they're adding teams and all of a sudden you know the Astros are not in the NL West like what is happening to baseball and i just think it's going to take some adjustment but i'm just really curious i think you work in like the most interesting fascinating part of this whole equation and i i have to wonder like you know i'm sure parents and kids ask you what you think is going to happen, like, what advice do you give to recruits? Or what do you tell them if they ask you, what do you think is going to happen, Biggins? 
Yeah, honestly, I'm I'm always extra hyper careful not to say anything that can be construed as I'm trying to like either recruit for or against. So I usually mm-hmm. just, I mean, I'm super super careful. And honestly, right now I don't really doesn't. It's not hard for me to be careful because I don't know. It's easy for me to say honestly, I don't know what's going to happen. So that's kind of my my generic answer. Um, you know, I still always said the same thing when you, when you pick a school, right? You, you almost kind of have to take football or your sport maybe just out of the equation. And ask yourself, hey, would you still want to be at that particular school? Do you have life goals that are more than three or four years old? Hopefully they're 45, 50 years old. Does this particular school help you reach those? And, and when I say that, that school, I don't mean a particular school. I'm just talking in general. So that all still applies for me. Um, but when they say, hey, is this, are we going to be in this conference, that conference? I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know. All I know is SC is still here in the Big Ten. I don't know where everything, what else is going to go. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, honestly, John, the reaction I'm, I'm getting is – Right now, they don't really care as much. They're, they're just thinking, okay, if I like that school, I'm going to still go to that school, whether they're in this conference or not. So we'll see how long that, long that stays. All right. Uh, finally, Lincoln Riley was putting together, I think, uh, at least offensively, a team I was really looking forward to seeing compete in the next two or three years, and it'll be they'll be gone in 2024. How much more difficult will recruiting be for USC in the Big Ten, or does this help Lincoln Riley? Knowing that, hey, we're going to be with the halves. We're going to be right prime position for the playoff. You want to, you want to play in the biggest games. You want to play Ohio State. Come to USC. Yeah, no, I think it does. I, honestly, I think it does help that, for the simple fact that I, I think people just have such a negative view of West Coast Pac-12 football right now. You know, when I'm when I'm out there, and I don't really notice it unless you go to like a national event, and everyone kind of like almost mocks. You know, football out west, it's soft. You guys don't have any teams. You guys are, you know, one or two team conference, if that. And if you guys play in the real league, blah, blah, blah. I hear that a lot from people. So all of a sudden, I think USC is in the Big Ten. I think it's going to be more difficult to win, to win games. I think, you know, the Big Ten as a whole probably has more good teams, stronger teams. Um, but I think it's going to help them recruit that area. I think USC was already doing a nice job recruiting nationally. I think they can still do that, recruit nationally even more in certain parts of the country. And um, so I, I think long-term, no, I think, it, I think it's going to help USC, believe it or not. There it is, Greg Biggins, 24-7 Sports. Follow him on Twitter. Read him at 24-7 Sports. Catch him here on this show occasionally. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate your time, Greg. Always, always fun, John. Thanks for having me. All right, there he is, Greg Biggins, 24-7 Sports. Let's, let's, uh, let's download a little bit on this, guys. Uh, Steven, Sean, give me one thing that Biggins talked about that jumped out to you. Just Oregon State's recruiting and just the fact that they are able to continue to recruit at a high level despite all of the turmoil. Even right now, it seems like they're recruiting at a super high level. Like They're going through a stadium reconstruction they're going through conference turmoil maybe more more so than any other school in the Pac-12 right now and Jonathan Smith continues to uh recruit at a really high level it was it was interesting to hear him talk about that I like the the Stanford being valuable things you know it's it's not just all about the football like we just we're so narrow-minded I feel like right now just thinking about football 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 but he brought up great points of all the other sports that Stanford is so good at and how valuable they can be and how it's such a good institution like they had actually a pretty valuable commodity to have in the Pac-12, and so it was really interesting to think about that because I just I don't even think about that. I just think about football and how they've been, you know, a little down the last few seasons. But even in football, they've been uh, really good with David Shaw. So it's it's gonna be so interesting to see what happens, John. Yeah, I think you know 
from the as he was talking there, a few things jumped out at me. One is, you know, the idea that Oregon has recruited Southern California so well. Mario Cristobal in particular just recruited the hell out of Southern California. And then he beat USC and he beat UCLA with their own players from their own backyard. When Biggins said, it do, this doesn't close the door for Oregon, that was big for me. Because, he, you know, he points out those kids are choosing Oregon because they love Oregon. They love the coaching. They love the uniforms. They love all that stuff. They, they're not coming to Oregon because, hey, we're going to get to play at USC and UCLA. Uh, once a year. Now, we could end up being wrong, like if Lincoln Riley really gets it together and he's playing in the Big Ten, you know, that helps him, and by virtue of that, that's going to hurt other programs that recruit Southern California, but it doesn't lock Oregon out by by just by virtue of the fact that they're not going to be playing a game at the Coliseum or a game at the Rose Bowl in the regular season. I think that's really interesting. Coming up, Anna's going to pop in the studio. Much more ahead. You got the BFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You can get a podcast of this radio show wherever you get a podcast. More than 3 million people this year have already listened to a podcast of this radio show. I appreciate you if you're a podcaster. Make sure you make a commitment to us. The podcast is free. All you have to do is subscribe. And if you want, tell your friends. Give us a review. Give us some feedback. It's how other people find us. Uh, I appreciate you if you're podcasting. Anna has joined the show. Anna, you listen to a podcast. You listen to Smartless. Yes. What do you like about Smartless? That's oh, a pod- Who's on it? What is what it? What is not to like? Uh, it's hosted by Sean Hayes, Will Arnett, and Jason Bateman. Sean Hayes, people might remember from the show Will and Grace. Will Arnett kind of speaks for himself. Jason Bateman of Ozark fame. And they interview, they have great interviews, and they tease the heck out of each other, which is always hilarious. You, you can mean tell. like they give each other a hard time? Absolutely. Constantly. Yes. And they obviously have a good enough relationship where they feel justified in doing that because sometimes they say things and you're like, oh, that would make me uncomfortable. But they, they're obviously good enough friends. But um, yeah, it's, it's uh, a lot of inside kind of Hollywood information. And I actually think it's great for people who want to go into a creative industry because they talk a lot about with their guests, you know, how did you get your break? Was it just dumb luck? What are the sacrifices that you had to make to put yourself in a position of even being discovered? You know, how many jobs did you work at as a server uh, in Hollywood before somebody finally, you know, picked you up on an audition. And um, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating. They started it in the summer of 2020, in the pandemic. Yes. Episodes come out on Monday. Yes. The episode begins with one of the three hosts revealing a mystery guest to the other two. Yeah. So they don't. the other two do not know who's coming on the show. Yeah, that, they say Is that. Is that true? I, I mean. Maybe I should do that. I'm hard-pressed to believe that that's really how it goes. Because yeah. you know how much coordination goes into booking guests. Yeah, but maybe yeah. they don't tell each other. It's, it's possible. They just say, I have somebody. But yeah. the guest list is like this. It's, it's like 
Seth Rogen, Will Farrell, Robert Downey Jr., Jennifer Aniston, Adam Sandler, yeah. Reese Witherspoon, Paul McCartney, uh, Megan Rapino, Martin Short, like, you know, Aquafina, George Clooney, it's Tina Fey, like they they have a they have some ins because of their industry. Yeah, and then but they don't always just do actors, actresses. They do directors too. So, so I think the interviews with the directors are always fascinating because you get a whole different perspective on how TV shows and movies are made. But they've interviewed like the Surgeon General. They've interviewed some scientists and you know not not everybody is sort of in the entertainment industry. They rope in some sports figures as well. I think they interviewed yeah, they interviewed LeBron. That was a good one as well. All right, let me ask you this. Um, why does it work? Because this is what happened. They started this thing in the pandemic, then all of a sudden, about 20, 30 episodes in, Creative Arts Artists Agency acquires it from them or on their behalf starts shopping it they sold it to amazon a year after starting it for 80 million dollars did they really i didn't know they made more money (laughs) on this podcast than they did acting in their careers oh my gosh 80 million combined dollars i'm sure they had some production costs so maybe they cleared 79 million nine hundred (laughs) thousand or so yeah but uh pretty good return on investment for these three cats oh yeah especially since it's just them sitting around chatting with people and you know they downplay obviously like why they've been so successful but it's a great combination of really quick-witted people uh with just a lot of inside knowledge i mean i didn't know like jason bateman has essentially i forgot i knew this but i forgot i didn't know that he's essentially grown up on television like he started in show business when he was so young and so he's got a lot to call upon when it comes to things that he's experienced, you know, people that he's seen and what he's learned over the years. It's fascinating to me that that thing, you listen to it. Like, you you are a creature of habit anyway. I am? Yeah, you are. You really? just don't know it. Yeah, okay. you have habits. <laughs> uh, like when you leave to go somewhere, you generally will leave. And about 90 seconds later, you come back through the door oh, yeah, to get what true. you forgot. Absolutely. Then you yes. go back to the car. Then you yeah. come back in the house. Yes. You're about a three-tripper. I am. Before yeah. you leave anywhere. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then you kind of look around. <laughs> we, you have this look on your face like, where is my purse or yeah. where is my phone? Where my phone? phone. Yeah. yeah. How many times do you tell me, yeah. like, can you go beep on? Beep my phone. Beep my phone yeah. or call my, my phone. My whole day. My whole yeah. day is, can you beep my phone? Okay. So what about this show? <laughs> The what singular one thing hooks you? Um, it's just the wit. It's the quick wit and the humor, and um, it's it's the interaction between the three hosts. That alone, like even if they didn't have a guest, I would just sit and listen to the three of them banter and give each other crap and you know and talk a little Hollywood because that it's that good. I like it, too, because I kind of overhear what they're saying. I love the creative stuff when they start talking about, as you were pointing out earlier, like for people who want, are interested in, a, in, you know, in being a creator of anything. If you're an artist, if you're a writer, if you are musically inclined, I just think there's some common themes that you can get in listening to them about the creative process that are fascinating. Even if you're not a creator, it's like if you have any kind of entrepreneurial spirit, spirit in you at all or you kind of voyeuristically are interested in how people got to where they are and the paths that they took, I mean, there's just some great content. Like 
the people, the actors, you know, who lived in shared studio apartments together uh, off of Sunset Boulevard trying to put their money together until somebody could make a break, you know, and and when they take a deep dive into the creative process, Jason Bateman in particular is really geeked out on directing right now, and he will go off on a whole tangent about the directing process and how he actually enjoys acting, writing, and directing in the same piece of work, which is so overwhelming to my brain. Like, I can't even imagine trying to direct myself in a performance and then, you know, jump in there and be effective at all, all of those things. Love it. Love the insight, the analysis. Why are you rolling your eyes? I'm not. You're, you kind of rolled your eyes like, oh. You know, yeah, I think it's important. I think, I think, you know, for people like, look, we're we were talking about this yesterday on the show. People's habits have changed when it comes to watching games. I think we like to point a finger at television and we like to blame television and say TV is bad. TV is putting money into college football. They've turned it into this money grab. It's all about entertainment. But, but like, if I'm really gonna be real, if I'm gonna look in the mirror, my habits when I watch games may have played a role in television doing what it's doing right now. I am seeking out entertainment. I am not sitting there watching games because that's my team. I'm going to watch that game wall to wall. I'm like everybody else where I'm watching like, you know, I'm on my phone looking at Twitter and then all of a sudden it's the fourth quarter and there's a good game going on. Oh, I got to get to Fox and watch it. It's definitely entertainment. Like the culture of America and sports has shifted from – Watching sports because I'm passionate about sports to watching sports because I want to be entertained. And so I'm interested too, Anna, in like why you listen to one podcast and ignore all the other ones. Like, you know, there's a whole bunch of other podcasts you I don't know. have time for. And I know like those true crime podcasts no, but... are so popular, you know, like everyone that I talk to listens to those. But I think for myself as a former investigative reporter, it's too close to the stuff that I was doing when I was going into the state penitentiary and interviewing serial killers and that kind of thing. Like, uh, I can only be fascinated with it up to a certain point. Yeah, because you know too much. And I, yeah, and I know too much, yeah. You know, it's like people who work in restaurants. Go into a restaurant, somebody's worked there any length of time. i got to be honest, they don't want to eat the food there. Yeah, you know? I'm always shocked when they are eating the food. I'm yeah. like, really, aren't you sick of, like... Sushi Looking right at now? it, man. I've worked in pizza parlors. I don't want to see pizza. I worked, I've worked in a number of restaurants as a server. I don't want to eat the food at those restaurants after a while. So true. But, you know, but this show keeps me coming back. This, this show is not like food. It's food for the soul, more or less. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anybody know if the Blazers and the Seahawks are for sale now? <laughs> Jody Allen. Came out yesterday, as I mentioned earlier, said, nope. Uh, we got a trade in the NFL today. Uh, Cleveland Browns have sent Baker Mayfield to the Carolina Panthers. They have set Baker Mayfield free as Cleveland is sending him to the Carolina Panthers 
for a conditional 2024 draft pick. The Panthers will pay uh, about $4.85 million of Baker Mayfield's salary. The Browns will pick up $10.5 million. Uh, Mayfield agreed to convert the remainder of his $18.8 million in salary into incentives that will help facilitate the deal. This is all pending a physical. Mayfield can earn that money back based on team performance. The Browns will either get a fourth or a fifth round pick in 2024, depending on how much Baker Mayfield plays in Carolina. Uh, for the pick to become a fourth rounder, Baker Mayfield would have to play 70% of the snaps. He was the number one overall pick in 2018. He joins a Panthers team that already has Sam Darnold, the number three pick in that same draft on the depth chart. And uh, the Panthers uh, have just added some depth to the quarterback position. I feel like this is a really good trade for the Panthers. I think it's a really good trade for Baker Mayfield. And in an odd way, it gives Cleveland a win, too, because they get out of the Baker Mayfield thing. But yet, where I think they lose is they have to pay $10.5 million of his salary while he goes out and I think performs better than the quarterback that they're going to have this season who will be suspended, likely. Uh, we're all waiting for Deshaun Watson. Who wins this trade in your mind? Steven, Sean, Baker Mayfield to the Carolina Panthers. Does it move the needle for you? It doesn't move the needle at all to me. I think the Panthers the Panthers had to make a move. You know, Matt Rule is very much on the hot seat. And so I think for the Panthers, it at least gives them an opportunity to have a quarterback competition between him and Sam Darnold. Now, I feel like Sam Darnold's still going to get the naughty because he he makes so much money and they they brought they brought him back uh, under that new contract that he has. But I don't think it moves the needle at all for me. And for the Browns, I mean, you had to get rid of him because he didn't want to be there. You've invested into Sean Watson for some reason, and that that that's what that's the bed you've laid on. And so I think for Cleveland, it's a good move just to get him out of there because uh, he didn't want to be there. And for Baker, I think it's good for him. Just gives him a fresh start, and hopefully for him, you know he can uh, live up to that number one overall draft pick uh, status that he had. Yeah, isn't it crazy that one team now has two of the three top picks, I believe, or at least they were two of the three top quarterbacks from yes. the 2018 NFL draft, and neither of them have really panned out. I thought Baker, it was a little bit, uh, I thought he kind of got underrated for a while. You know, I think he's always been a decent quarterback, a top 15, top 20 guy, and sure, he, he can be a little bit uh, noisy off the field, and he clearly didn't work out with Cleveland, but I think, you know, he's a worthy starting quarterback, and he's not a needle mover. He's not going to help Carolina make the playoffs or make the Super Bowl, but I do think that he's a uh, he's a deserving starter quarterback, and I think he'll win the job over Darnold. But the thing I like about it is I think Baker Mayfield's a competitor. I think, you know, he's got some dog in him, right? And I and I think that he was really unhappy with how the Cleveland Browns treated him. And this whole Deshaun Watson thing has been messy. And it's actually kind of, I think, uh, boosted Baker Mayfield's profile to the point where, like, I'm interested in seeing this guy play. And, hell, I might root for him because I don't want it to work out for the Browns. So keep an eye on that. Anna, you know, I know you're not tuned into the football part of this, but, You've kind of been eavesdropping, you know, over the last few months as we talk about Deshaun Watson in Cleveland. Now their former starting quarterback is in Carolina. Well, and I'm curious yeah. about that because I think part of that conversation involves Seattle, right? And whether there was some idea that the Seahawks were interested in Baker Mayfield possibly as well. But now I guess that's... Yeah, I, I think 
that that you know they're gonna they're gonna go ride or die with Drew Locke. I think at, at this point, but I think there were a lot of fans who were looking at the Seahawks going, could Baker Mayfield be like the stopgap for the Seahawks mm-hmm. after Russell Wilson? And by the way, are do you guys feel like the Seattle fans are a little touchy? A little sensitive about Russell Wilson's yeah, news. Judith left the room. You think? That's <laughs> too raw. I think, look, yeah. sorry, finish your question. No, go. You know what I'm asking. Go. Are they a little touchy about the Russell Wilson situation? I think they're playing it right. I think the time was kind of, uh, it was it was overdue that they traded Russell Wilson. And I think Seattle, the fact that they're keeping Drew Locke and Geno Smith as their two quarterbacks, I think says everything about their intentions. There are a couple of gold mines in next year's draft. Bryce Young of Alabama, C.J. Stroud of Ohio State. I think they're looking at one of those two guys. I think it's insane that they chose Pete Carroll over Russell Wilson, a Hall of Fame quarterback, and they got rid of Russell Wilson and traded him away. Like I, I disagree with Sean that like I think they are touchy, but I don't think they did, like they deserve what they get, and that's going to be a bad season in Seattle because the first, yeah. they, they didn't want they didn't want Russell Wilson. They've chose Pete Carroll over him, which is insane to me that you would choose a coach over a quarterback who is going to be a Hall of Famer and who has won a Super Bowl in the NFL. Like, that's just wild to me that they made that decision. Look, I think from a football standpoint, I think you can rationalize it because you can kind of just go, hey, the uh, you know, there's a trajectory, there's a season for all things. Russell Wilson had kind of played it out. The Seahawks were no longer a contender. I get it. You know, it happens. But I do find that the fan base, the Seattle fans, are a little sensitive, like when they see – you know, Russell Wilson's house. Remember when the house, it had like 12 bathrooms? And, you know, I think the Seahawks fans, that, that thing got more traction in Seattle than it did in Denver. Like, people in Seattle were like, oh, look at all the bathrooms he's got. Look at him, that greedy SOB. Like, and before that, he was just like, you know, the Seattle fans were like, well, he needs somewhere to go to the bathroom. Yeah, I'm you sure know? he was living in a shack up there in Seattle somewhere, right? Yeah. Just a real modest home. You slumming I, it up yeah. there. Slumming it. But I think that when the images of him in the Broncos uniform first circulated, yeah. oh, too soon. Yeah. Too soon. It's, you know, look, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not I'm a Niner fan. Okay? So, I get it. I watched Joe Montana go to the Kansas City Chiefs. And they chose Steve Young. And it was probably the right thing to do because Joe Montana back in the day had a bad back. But it never felt right to me. N- never. It still doesn't. I could see a photo of Golden Joe in that Chiefs uniform, and it still go- I still would go, oh, man, that, that doesn't belong. I, but the Seattle fans, the problem is Drew Locke is not Steve Young. There's, it's not like they're excited about who's going to be playing quarterback in Seattle, and I, I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, Sean's it, right on that, is that the future quarterback is not on this roster. Like They are definitely going for one of the quarterbacks in this upcoming draft. Yeah, so, there are some studs. I think they're doing it the right way. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm oftentimes pro tanking. Sometimes I wish Portland would do that too and trade Dame, but that's well, a whole different topic. Portland's been tanking for decades. Okay, they just know, they didn't tell anybody except for a couple years when they had nice seasons. But I, I, th- that's part of that thing. Like when Jody Allen came out yesterday and she said the team's not for sale. Like there was a collective groan. There was a groan. People want the Blazers to be sold. I'm not sure how the Seahawks fans feel. But Blazer fans want this team in the hands of somebody who will love it again. And I was talking to Peter about this before one of our shows, and he, uh, you know, this is the one topic all Blazer fans are on, on board with, and that was with Phil Knight being the owner of the team. Like, hundred percent. Like, there's so many arguments in the Blazer world of Blazer fans, but Phil Knight being the owner, a hundred percent approval rating. Isn't that funny? 
how that works. You can unify a fan base, galvanize a fan base with one thing, like, hey, get that guy in charge, and all of a sudden everybody will be winning chalupas again and the team will be in the playoffs. I just think there's an accountability factor that has been missing since Paul Allen passed away, probably a little before he passed away, as he was he was pretty sick at the end there. And I think if you are a Blazer fan, yeah, I'm with you. I would like to see Phil Knight on this team as well. So every day I'm going to ask, are we there yet? Hey, but John, Jody said it's all about winning. That's what you just said in her statement. You can say it's about winning, but you need to act like it's about winning. That was the part of the statement that I thought was most interesting, is that she seemed to be making an emotional plea. Mm -hmm. Like... If you were to translate it, it would be like, hey, I care about both teams and I want them to win too. Yeah. You know, I don't undervalue my passion for these teams, even though yeah. we haven't actually seen her at very many Blazer games. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, that's fascinating to me. I don't mind her saying that, you know, she wants to win or it's about winning. Yeah. But when it doesn't line up with the actual winning. <laughs> <laughs> the fans all know it's BS. Was it about winning last year? No. It was about tanking. Was it about winning the year before? Probably not. Not really. Does it look like it's about winning now? Kind of. Like, I don't Proof's see... Proof's in the pudding, right? Yeah. I don't yeah. see... Like, it's... She, you know what she reminds me of? All these bozo friends of yours that you have, and I'm not talking to you, Anna. I'm talking to you, listener. <laughs> you have a bunch of bozo friends who, who talk about getting in shape and eating right and doing all the right things. You know, I'm going to be in shape this summer, all this stuff. I say it, too. I'm guilty of it. And then what happens? We go through the drive-thru. We don't go to the gym every day or at least three or four days a week like we're supposed to. We you're, resort to pizza. You're not getting your cardio in. But at least we're real about it. Like, we're, we're aware that we're falling short. Jody mm -hmm. Allen, you need to get in the gym. Okay? That's what I'm saying as an owner. That's the equivalent. Get in the gym and eat right. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Zion Williamson, uh, Pelicans front court star has uh, has uh, hardly played in the NBA. He got a rookie max extension contract uh, earlier this week that could be up uh, could be worth up to 231 million dollars. 231 million dollars. He signed the extension at a summer camp that he hosts for kids at the YMCA. And after he signed it, he said, quote, I'm locked in, baby. Um, Zion wants to be a successful player, wants to prove that he's a winner. Feels like he's far away from that, though. I, Yeah, I, I just, I don't know. Um, you know, he is crediting C.J. McCollum with helping him work on some things to improve his longevity. But... I just think it's about, can he get on the court? Forget longevity. We haven't seen enough of him on the court to, uh, to know that the guy is worth that money. An entirely speculative proposition by the Pelicans. 
to give him $231 million. I guess all the contracts in the NBA are built that way. Anna, are you ready for the five at five? Absolutely. We're going to do the five at five coming up. Five biggest kind of sort of things going on in the world. We'll give them to you coming up next. We'll take a bunch of phone calls in the five o'clock hour. It is the happy hour. You will be smarter and happier if you stick around. So stick around. You got the bald faced truth statewide on the BFT radio network. Five o'clock hour is ahead. Leave it right here. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Five o'clock hour is the happy hour. I appreciate those of you who listen to this show, wherever you may be. I know you're busy. I know you have options. It's like one of those airlines. I think it's Southwest. They tell you, we know you have options when it comes to flying. I mean, think about it. You have options when it comes to this radio show. I'm honored that you are here to listen to this show. Maybe uh, maybe you leave it uh, thinking about something. Maybe you feel something when you're listening to it. Maybe uh, Maybe you get informed a little bit. We got a final hour here that I think will move quickly. We're going to start it with the five at five. Whole bunch of things going on in sports. Uh, among them, some developments on the Pac-12 front that I will share with you. We'll also talk about um, the future of college athletics and and is it becoming too much like the NFL? Is it becoming too professional-like? Is it turning you off in that way? We'll talk all about it this hour. Take your phone calls, 503-417-7575. You want to weigh in on that. But before that, we're going to do the 5 at 5. Let's go, Anna. The 5 at 5. Well, the Pac-12 and the ACC are discussing a partnership. According to Ross Dellinger of SportsIllustrated.com, he says they're discussing a partnership that would have the ACC network or a new ESPN network airing Pac-12 games on the West Coast. This comes in the wake of the Big Ten poaching UCLA and USC. Now, the ACC would get additional TV revenue. ESPN would get a big chunk of the Pac-12 inventory. The Pac-12's 10 remaining members would stay intact. And it would create a desirable landing place potentially for some Big 12 teams. The Pac-12 teams that were reported to be on the move to the Big 12, I'm here to tell you don't listen too closely to that. I've spoken with a couple of them. They say, eh, it's not our, uh, it's not our primary focus right now. Pac-12 is trying to hold itself together. And I think the Pac-12 will hold itself together. But ESPN is going to be the glue. Anna, number two, go. Guess who wants to join the world of broadcasting? Brett Favre says it's a real oh, possibility no. that he would be open to joining a big network to broadcast and analyze NFL games. The 52-year-old Green Bay Packers legend says he'd consider it, but it'd have to be the great deal, maybe a Monday night or Thursday night gig. Nonetheless, he would ponder it. He also joked that people would have to get used to his 
country accent and aw shucks mentality as he broadcast. He's not surprised he said that Tom Brady got a $375 million deal to talk football on TV. But do you think he would fetch that much? I don't think so. Not as much as Tom Brady, right? No. Uh, no, nowhere near. I don't think anybody wants to hear Brett Favre. I don't want to hear Brett Favre. <laughs> I feel like that window closed on him, and he's seeing the money, and he's going, hey, I would like some of that. I'm bored, too. Exactly. But I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Sorry, Brett Favre. Maybe they can make him the sideline reporter. Oh, that would be fun. You know? Yeah. Tom Brady, let's throw it down to Brett Favre. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's on the sideline down there? That could be entertaining. Brett Favre. Our third thing in our five at five, Baker Mayfield. I mentioned it earlier, but I want to hit it again. I think it's big. Baker Mayfield traded to the Carolina Panthers for what will be a fourth or fifth round draft pick. Baker Mayfield has been inconsistent. He has had a shoulder injury. Um, he has become increasingly frustrated, I thought, in Cleveland with the franchise that, you know, essentially made him the fourth quarterback in NFL history that played for four different head coaches in his first three seasons. Like, that is a mess for anybody, let alone a guy like Baker Mayfield. Um, it's just been interesting to watch the Cleveland Browns misplay this thing. And now we'll get to watch... The Cleveland Browns try to live without Baker Mayfield, while Baker Mayfield is extremely motivated, extremely motivated to go out and prove everybody wrong. I think this is exactly what Baker Mayfield needed. I think he wins this trade. Anna, number four in our five at five. The lawyers are winning. The famous Dodgers peanut vendor, Roger Owens, says that he's been banned from his traditional peanut bag tossing routine in Dodger Stadium. He's 79 years old. He's famous for his theatrics when he delivers a bag of nuts to fans at Dodger Stadium. He's been doing this for decades, but the company that's now in charge of concessions at the stadium believes that his peanut pitching is now a safety concern for spectators. This guy's been featured on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, as well as lots of movies and TV shows. He says he's not going to fight the decision, but it is, in fact, most likely to prevent a lawsuit in case some unsuspecting fan gets hit with an errant toss of peanuts. Come on. Is that the world we're in? That is the world So litigious. In. He says they've got plenty of time to see it coming it's not like some bullet that goes straight through he always makes sure that whoever he's throwing it to is going to try and catch it all right so let me ask you like you can go to a ball game and you could get hit by a ball a bat you could get hit by a player who's trying to make a catch near the stands you could get injured but they're really going to say the peanut guy is the problem? Can't they just add a little line to, like, the ticket agreement, that tiny, tiny print on your ticket that, you know, covers the team in case you do get hit by some flying object at a baseball game? Can't they add you might get hit with a bag of peanuts and just say call it good? Sack of nuts. <laughs> Sack of nuts. Finally, the fifth thing in our five at five. I like the 5 at 5. I wish we could do the 5 at 5 for for the entire show. How about that? You like that? 
Sure. Do you like the idea of like, hey, we just run the music for the whole show. We just have to come up with a, come up with things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. All right. Uh, here is my fifth thing in the five at five. It's going to be Seahawks related. Uh, if the Seahawks were interested in Baker Mayfield, because for months there was speculation that he was going to be Russell Wilson's successor. This has been talked about. But with Baker Mayfield out of the picture, it's Drew Locke and Geno Smith. It's not the most ideal quarterback competition. It's not two Hall of Famers fighting for a position. But it's, you know, you're looking around this division that the Seahawks are in, and you're you're kind of wondering, like, how they ended up in a position where they are so woeful at, a posi- at that quarterback position. You got... You know, the Niners had Jimmy Garoppolo as a potential backup. The Panthers had Sam Darnold, who could potentially come in. I guess the Seahawks just didn't think there was enough there. So it's going to be Locke, who's 25 years old. It's going to be Geno Smith, who, you know, will be competing against him. Geno's ahead, Pete Carroll said. But, you know, by the time they get into camp, who knows? It feels like it's a 50-50 proposition at the quarterback position. But just not wild about what the Seahawks are doing here. I don't think they're tanking, are they? That's your five at five. Five biggest things going on. How do you guys feel about tanking? Because it came up earlier, I think I think it was you, Sean, who said you're okay with tanking. Are you okay with tanking, really? Yeah, I mean, like, look, if you're the Seahawks or the Blazers and you're kind of in the middle of the road and there's not really a, a clear path to a championship and you have a Bryce Young in the NFL or you have a Victor Wembenyama, my preference as a fan is that they kind of blow it up. And, you know, I like what the Seahawks did trading Russell Wilson. It might be one bad year, but it might be 10 years of glory. You might you might find the jackpot next year's draft because of what they're going through right now. And it's just a year, maybe year and a half of, of struggle. And I think, you know, I think about the Blazers and, you know, it seems like they're in the middle of the road, not really a clear path to the championship right now. And sometimes I wish they would blow it up as well. I definitely agree with you that the Blazers are in the middle of the road. But, like, this last season with the Blazers, I was all for tanking because just with all the injuries, uh, new coach, everything like that, it, it seemed like the right choice. So I'm not, like, I'm not pro-tanking from the start of the season, really. I think you should try to at least, you know, give it a chance, give it a shot, see if you can do anything. But, you know, you look at teams like the Thunder who have been tanking for years and now they have a lot of good athletic prospects on their team. You know, maybe this is the year they try to make that jump. Same with the Timberwolves, the same exact thing. You know, they made the playoffs last season. So I think in general, I'm against tanking, but for the Blazers last season especially, I was for tanking. It's gotta be certain circumstances for me. I just I don't like it. I feel like if if you're tanking, there's a bigger problem. Like there's a problem with the league. And I think we all know there's a problem in the NBA that the NBA I, I think they've tried to address it but they can't. They, they don't have the hard salary cap that the NFL has. They have guaranteed contracts, which really cause the teams to get into these speculative relationships with the players. Like, they are paying the players as if they are all-stars when they draft them and then hoping they turn into all-stars. And when they don't, they still extend them. Uh, Zion Williamson comes to mind because they go, hey, we've got a lot invested in them already. I just feel like... I don't think any sport should be tanking. Like, it flies in the face of 
what competition is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about your best against my best, and we're all going to get out, we're going to compete, and we're going to shake hands at the end. And I don't feel like I'm out on my front lawn that way. Like, I, I really do think that that is, like, the, at the core of sports. And so when I see teams, and it happens every year, and the Blazers, it you know, it happened to them last year, I see teams who go, hey, there's no strategy here, and there's no point in us trying to win because best-case scenario, we're going to be, like, in the play-in game. So we might as well go for a draft pick. Well, where did it get them? You know, they ended up with the seventh pick, and they ended up playing a, you know, drafting a player that is going to be a couple of few years away from even maybe being able to help them. Like I like the player that they drafted in Shaden Sharp, but I just feel like that that it didn't work. And so, you know, when I hear you guys talk about tanking, I am aware that like there's there's probably a larger issue with the league in that. If this is the solution for teams that are struggling, like just to give up and try to lose as many games as possible, that there's something wrong with the system. I do agree with that. I do think that there's a bigger problem in sports of the tanking. But the thing about Shaden Sharp, John, is it may work out, right? If Shaden Sharp turns out to be a really good player, it was all a good decision to make this tank job for the Blazers last season because they weren't going to go anywhere. And if you, like you said, if they made the play-in game, there really is no benefit to that for the players on the roster. So it still remains to be seen, but I'm with you in the general sense, like in all sports, there's definitely a problem with the tanking that it rewards you for losing. You know what does win for Seattle (laughs) is the slogan that they can have for this coming year. Lock Smith. Come on. Lock Smith. Lock Smith. That'll get him one account, one Change sponsorship. Judah's going to be walking around with a Locksmith t-shirt one of these yeah. days. <laughs> Locksmith. Oh, my gosh. We're going to need to make him a t-shirt. And you know what? Make it with masking tape. <laughs> Put masking tape on yet? it. Like, Locksmith. <laughs> Anna, you're so proud of yourself. I'm really we're proud in, of myself. We're in this deep conversation about tanking. I know. And you're know. over here going. Chopping like, at the bit to be like, hey, does anyone realize Locksmith is a great slogan? Mike. Um, Mike in Portland is called in. Mike, what's on your mind? I just wondered what Damon Lillard's uh, thought is about the checks from uh, Jody Allen, how demotivating, demotivating that's got to be for him, for his mindset going forward. I can't see where he would read that as something that he wants to stay at. It's just, just a thought. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I want to be really fair to Jody Allen. Like, I want to be really intentionally fair to her because she inherited the this team the keys were handed to her you know but at the same time I know that this isn't her love it's not her passion and so I want her to let go of this team and it's frustrating to read that news release yesterday with her saying she really wants to win and everything and you know I get it your brother's a bill your brother was a billionaire he bought a team, you ended up with it. You know? This there's nothing in that story that moves me to go, Oh, she really has ownership of this team. What do you think is behind the timing of that? Like, <sighs> come on, start of the week, it was a what, a Tuesday? Like why? Why now Nobody was asking. why this there has to be a bigger picture reason in the same way that we were like, wait, why is Phil Knight announcing that he wants yeah. to offer to buy the Blazers? Ahead of like everybody else to clear the deck. So what? Yeah, I think Phil Knight got his elbows out and he was rebounding. Yeah, he was getting big. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, the coaches will say, get big. Get wide. Get big. Get wide. Yeah, yeah. He got his elbows out. He got in a good athletic stance. Like, I get that. And he went, I want this team. And, you know, because it is going to keep some other billionaires out of that conversation. Sure. There's a limited number of people. I was told when the Broncos sold, the company that is handled the auction for the Broncos was a company called Allen and Company. No relation to Paul or Jody. Allen and Company creates, when they go to sell these teams, these teams, they create a book, you know? Yeah. You know how the, the, these these uh, fashion people have lookbooks? Yeah. What's a lookbook? Uh, it's basically where you can just flip through and see all of their, you know, greatest greatest hits, greatest works. Okay, so this is the summer line or the spring collection. Yeah. It, here's our lookbook, right? So they create a lookbook, like, you know, I got to think, give me a designer, name a designer. Any, uh, you know, come Vera on. Wang. Vera, Vera Wang. Wang has a lookbook for the spring collection. Here's Sean wearing all the great fashion that Vera Wang has designed, okay? Mm, yeah. Okay, so these auction houses create a lookbook for the teams. And inside the lookbook, it's not just glossy pictures. It's the actual finances of the team in this lookbook that is created. I'm trying to get my grubby hands on the Blazers lookbook once it's produced. But I'm being told they only produce a limited number of these things and the only people that get to see them are the actual billionaires like Phil Knight who would be potential bidders. So they're not going to put them in the hands of like a bunch of other people. But my thing is I want one of these damn books, right? Because it's all in there. It's going to tell us here's what you get when you're buying the Blazers. Here's the revenue generated by ticket sales, by sponsors. Here's their season ticket renewal numbers. It's basically the Rosetta Stone that says, hey, this is what the team's worth. So they're going to produce these lookbooks, and they want to get them into the hands of the potential bidders. So Phil Knight, as you astutely point out, Anna, goes early. He announces to everybody. He sh he's that guy on the 4th of July who's setting off the firework at like 2.30. Okay, <laughs> it's still light out. We're barely barbecuing. Yeah. And he's setting off the fireworks. Uh -huh. And we're all going, what are you doing? You, you know, have prematurely uh, exploded your fireworks. <laughs> and... What? Whoa. Go on. Premature <laughs> firework eruption. Okay? So Phil Knight does that. He goes early. I got to think it's because he wants everybody else on the block who has fireworks to be like, you know what? That dude is setting off some fireworks right now. I'm just going to clear out of here. Massive fireworks. He can, ha he can have at it. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I think the Blazers move. We saw what they did right after Phil came forth with his offer, written offer. That was leaked intentionally. Uh, the Blazers say we're not for sale, which we all know is a lie. They are for sale. Okay, they are. And now the Blazers have come out again and said, we're really not for sale mm -hmm. with no one's asking. Yeah. So well, someone must be asking. They must somebody, be tired of it or what? What is it? I think they're trying to regain leverage in this negotiation. Yeah. Because... You know, That's the only leverage that they might have is to say that we're not for sale. Yeah, because right? Anna, let me let me just say, you know, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing pants today. <laughs> these these pants oh, are nice pants. Uh -huh. I like them. Yeah, they're they're game used. Okay, these <laughs> pants. Um, you know, if I'm offering them for sale, yeah, and I have them sitting out front of the house, and I'm like, these are for sale, and here's the price. You know, you know what's gonna happen? Somebody's gonna come up and go, oh, you don't want those pants. You want 10 bucks for them? I'll yeah. give you eight. Right. right. Right? I think the Blazers are essentially saying our pants are not for sale. In <laughs> fact, we're still wearing these pants. 
So by and that, we want to win. By that logic, no lookbook has been yet created. No, I don't think they're. I think the Blazers want a hundred percent of leverage. I think they're getting advice from somebody who's telling them the best play you have is to say you're not for sale. Do you think it also could be? She mentioned ten to twenty years specifically in that release. Phil Knight's eighty-four years old. Do you think that has anything to do with it as well? I think it, it's. It felt like she said forever when I read that. <laughs> Like it was, I, it was demoralizing. That was the worst part of the whole news release. Like, if if she had said, you know, we'll revisit it, and you know, it takes a year or two to unwind these things, we'd all go, okay, they're going to be for sale in six months. But when she said ten to twenty years, there's some people who went, I don't have that time. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you know. Look, look, I don't know what kind of health she's in, but. You know, when she said 10 to 20 years, it's 100%. But that's more leverage play, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, let's right? try, to, try to get more money out of Phil Knight, right? Like, hey, Phil, if you really want this, you know, up it up by $2 billion. And our, our focus is winning, that emotional plea that you mentioned, Anna. All right, so let me just use the analogy of my pants. I'm still wearing them. I love these pants. I want to win in these pants. I might wear these pants for 10 to 20 years. Suddenly now, you're offering me more than 8 bucks for these pants. I think it's as simple as that. I think they're playing a game that has been played for ages. A game that is played at every garage sale, at every flea market, in every eBay transaction. It's not really for sale. Well, because back to the reporting that you've done, I mean, legally, the, the, the entity, like the trust, the Paul G. Allen yeah. Trust or whatever, like the executors of that trust are bound legally to sell the team like it's written in the trust right unless yeah. unless yes. they manage no. to somehow legally yeah. get around that they're in there and they are in the release they try to tiptoe around it It'd be like nothing no timeline or nothing's been dictated but that's nonsense the, the 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 thing that is problematic with this is that legally the trustee has a fiduciary responsibility to do to act in the best interest of the trust okay so it does leave Jody some wiggle room where she can say, you know, it's not in the best interest of the trust to, you know, hold a fire sale right now. Right. Which is true. It's like, in the best interest of the trust to drive up the market price as much as possible yeah. and expand your leverage as much as possible before a sale down the line. I'll come back to something that was said to me by um, a high-ranking NBA official. They said the Blazers should do – the holistic thing. Jody should do what's holistic was the gist of this. Meaning, don't try to wring every dollar you can out of your brother's team. Try to get market value for the team, but try to leave it in a better place than where you found it. And my fear is that she's not going to do that. She's going to try to wring every dollar she can out of it. And I don't think Phil Knight has the patience to deal with somebody who is uh, not as sophisticated as he is in that world. And I think Jody and her lieutenant, Burt Cold, at some point, I think Phil Knight is going to look over and go, why am I dealing with these idiots? Like, it isn't worth the trouble. And I think that is what really concerns me about the release yesterday. Hmm. Don't you think at some point Phil Knight's like, 
I, I don't, don't need, know. I don't need this. I'm more optimistic than you then. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I want to believe, maybe that's the Pollyanna in me, but I want to believe that she's trying to do what is actually best for the team by coming out and saying, I actually am passionate about the Blazers and the Seahawks, and I want both teams to do well. Um, if the silver lining in it is that she's driving up the market price and you know trying to get the best price possible on behalf of the trust or whatever, I'm fine with that, as long as it means that it, that she is going to help lead this team, these teams, into positions where they can be competitive and not be tanking. Yeah. And be teams that we as fans can root for. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I hope you're right. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, if you're just tuning in, uh, news of the day, Pac-12 continuing to pursue a partnership with the ACC. Continuing to be part of that partnership. Continuing, uh, despite what happened with the Big Big Ten Conference, uh, to move toward a partnership with the ACC that would be meaningful would create uh, some matchups on the East and West Coast, also would uh, create ESPN taking control of the Pac-12's inventory, including the Pac-12 networks. Uh, It's all really interesting stuff, and I think uh, if you are somebody who tracks the Pac-12 conference and cares deeply about the Pac-12 conference, um, look, I'm here to tell you I've heard a lot of gloom and doom in the last 24 to 48 hours. A lot of people, you know, lamenting that, you know, this has just gone too far. They should all just go independent, all this other stuff. Uh, that, you know, you gotta, you got to remember, there is no money in being independent. There's no money in trying to be Notre Dame unless you're Notre Dame. Notre Dame even is weighing its options because there is more money in being part of a conference than there is being independent. And frankly, there are some scheduling hassles that come up. It's why you see Notre Dame and it's why you see BYU aligning themselves with a conference so that they can have a schedule. Creates all sorts of problems. I do think the best path forward for the Pac-12 is some kind of partnership with the ACC, an expanded footprint on ESPN, Access to all those television households in the ACC footprint that bring you all sorts of new viewers and more money to your existing media rights deal. We had Bob Thompson, the former head of Fox Sports Networks, tell us uh, yesterday on the show that you know he values the Pac-12's current offerings without USC and UCLA part of the footprint at around $300 million a year. $300 million. That is 30% of what the Big Ten's offering is worth to Fox. So, yeah, it's not ideal. But if you're the Pac-12, your best way to fight and punch and scrap for pieces of this uh, pie, so to speak, are to continue to battle and to continue to position yourself in the best way possible. Get yourself in the best position that you can get in to succeed. And I do think right now, 
what's best for the Pac-12 is not to break up. What's best for the Pac-12 is not to go, Oregon and Washington, we wish you well, because Oregon and Washington don't have anywhere to go. And part of, I think, the, the, uh, the sobering feeling that I think is permeating in some Pac-12 markets, if we're going to be honest, part of it is tied to the fact that the expectations of the Washington fan base and the Oregon fan base are not in line with reality. I must say it again. There are some fans who are Oregon Duck fans and some fans that are Washington fans who really believe that they would be at the front of the line if the Big Ten or the SEC were expanding. Now, they may get in at some point, but it's going to have to take an incredible subsidization by the other members of those conferences, and it's going to take a, a, you know those conferences going, hey, uh, it really justifies or the numbers merit us letting you in because the numbers right now don't. The number of households that watch the Oregon Ducks, it's impressive. The brand of Oregon is impressive. The success of Oregon on the field, it's impressive. But when it came time to pay the bill, Fox just wasn't interested because the numbers aren't there. And it's not Oregon's fault, but Oregon is located in a small media market. When you talk about Eugene, you talk about Salem, you talk about Portland even, you're not moving the needle for the Big Ten or the SEC. Same goes for Washington. I asked Bob Thompson, the former president of Fox, about, you know, what put a valuation on Washington and Oregon for me. You know, if, if UCLA and USC are worth $140 million as an entity, Southern California's TV market, worth $140 million a year to the Big Ten, what's Oregon and Washington worth? And he said about $60 million. So you're about $83 million short of this penciling out for the Big Ten. Uh, there, there's a reckoning there. It is about TV market. It's not a, really that much about your brand or what you're doing on the field. I keep I have friends, and I love my friends. I have friends who are going, but yeah, the, the Pac-12's record, like Oregon beat Ohio State last year. Doesn't that count for anything? Fox doesn't care about that. All Fox cares about is the number of households that are in your footprint. That's what they care about because that's what they can turn and sell to advertisers. It's, it's really about television. We, I have to hammer that point home. I've been doing radio interviews all over the place. I did one in Pittsburgh this morning. And I got off the phone after the interview, and I thought to myself, gosh, like even the hosts of that show don't really understand that it isn't about the, you know, who can compete. It isn't about, like they asked me, why, why, not, why, why doesn't the Pac-12 partner with the SEC? Why the ACC? And I'm like, do you not understand? Like, the SEC's television deal prices out everybody in the Pac-12 except the L.A. schools. That was the only thing, that was the only factor that could have got the attention of ESPN that runs the SEC network and runs SEC. Uh, That's what would have got their attention. That speaks their language. The fact that you're competitive on the field, the fact that, you know, that that doesn't – look at. If that moved the needle, Clemson would be in the SEC. But no, Clemson's part of an existing television contract with the ACC. So Clemson's stuck, as is Miami. Would, you know, 
And, and here's the other thing, you know, and I want to hit on this a little bit, and I want you to help me out with this if you're listening. The NFL, in a lot of ways, gets it right. We know it's about money in the NFL. We know that, you know, the good teams make the playoffs and the bad teams don't. That seems just. We know that contracts are not guaranteed. It's a very fair system, the NFL. It works in a number of ways. But I'm, I'm a little worried that college football is flying too close to the sun here. It's fashioning itself as a professional sports league, but it's not. It's not going to do the NFL better than the NFL. But I kind of feel like college athletics is gravitating in a way that maybe isn't beneficial to college athletics at all. It's gravitating towards being a professional sports league. And I've heard people today, I think Andy Staples uh, raised the comparison. He said, you know, is, is the SEC and the Big Ten comparison, is it like the AFC and the NFC, or is it like the AFL and the NFL, or what is it like? And I'm like, you know what? That's not a that's not a that's not a wild thing to say. It it concerns me how professional this whole thing feels. And I and earlier in the week I was really and over the weekend I was really caught up on kind of wrapping my head around the idea that college athletics as you know it and I know it is is not going to be what it was, right? And that's been coming for a while. Name, image, likeness, transfer portal. We've watched money. We saw Texas and Oklahoma leave the Big 12 for the SEC, and maybe because it didn't affect you and your conference that you root for, maybe uh, maybe you weren't as tuned into it. But it's hitting home now, and it affected the Pac-12 conference. And I think for years we're going to look back and we're going to go, that was a pivot point. When USC and UCLA went, we're going to chase the money. That That changed something. And – and, and it's not like it's unfamiliar, because we're all around it. Like in the NBA, it's about money. It's about max contracts. It's about, you know, your agent. It's about the salary cap. It's about, you know, whose payroll is higher. And, you know, it, 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 it is all about money. The, in the NFL, it's about money. You know, even the Baker Mayfield trade today, the Browns are going to pay $10.5 million of his salary next season while he goes out and tries to prove that they're idiots. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in sports that's about money. But college athletics for a long time was the place we could go to where we felt like, you know, there was some parity being fostered. You know, the in the Pac-12, despite the fact that USC and UCLA had the, the biggest, best media market, they got the same distribution that Washington State got and Oregon State got from the media deal. It didn't feel fair to them, but, you know, we heard Bill Moose on yesterday's show, the former Washington State AD, he said, you know, we really worked to foster parity. I don't think that that is what is happening at all in college athletics anymore. In fact, the haves are separating themselves in a way that feels really sobering. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Your phone call is coming up. you got the bald-faced truth. <laughs> Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
Well, I hope you're reading me at johnconzano.com. I'm having a lot of fun writing there. I, uh, I wrote this morning again about the Pac-12 conference. I got a whole bunch of th- you know, stuff to say. Uh, and, and it, look, I'm just going to say something that I don't know if you need to hear this, but I need to say it. Um, I love doing this radio show. I love having the platform of this show. One of the things that really um, brings me joy is every day this realization or this responsibility that I know that we all have on this show to to put out the best three hours of content that we can possibly do on this show. And everybody works their butt off. Like, Sean, I know you were hustling today. You're working behind the scenes. Steven, you're kicking butt. Like, Judah's out there. we got a team of interns, production assistants. I've got researchers that you guys have never even met that are all coming together and firing me things during the show and during the breaks and it there's a lot of moving pieces and I think Stephen you can vouch for this like right before the show I think today you were trying to get a hold of me but I was talking to a researcher but I kind of overheard you saying here's you know I was listening it, but we're all doing our best right but I think one of the cool things about the show is I always I feel a great personal responsibility you know accountability to make the show good because if the show sucks it means that I failed and and I let you down and and I don't want to do that I feel the same damn thing at johnconzano.com and I could not put my finger on it when I first started it but uh, I got a friend who owns a business okay uh, Kevin Betker at Bridgetown Window and Door I had coffee with him right when uh, the the decision was being made that I was like, I'm going rogue. I'm going out on my own. Anna was encouraging me. She was like, go, you know, you've written for newspapers for all these years. Go write, you know, write what you want to write every day and see how it feels. And, and I, you know, Kevin made a point to me. He, he kind of said, look, you know, when you own a business, it's you. Like, if you don't get it done, it's you. It's on you. Like, there's a certain de- amount of pressure that comes with that if you view it that way. But there's a certain amount of joy that comes in that, too, because it's sort of like the radio show that I feel like if if I'm not on it, you're going to know. And if, you know, if if we're not doing our jobs on our end, it's going to show on it's going to you know be evident by the radio show that you listen to. Well, it shows that you're competitive, right? Like that's the way like you want to yes. be good and you want to win. Right. Like I I. I relate to that because as you know, I played college basketball, small college basketball. So I knew it was all about me. Like if I didn't perform, like what's the point of me earning money? Like I, I shouldn't be earning this money, right. To get my scholarship. So I'm with you in that. Like I'm very competitive and I want to be the best I can. And so I think that's why we, you know, I've only been here for two full weeks, but I think that's why we're getting along so well. Yes. Uh, yeah. And you, you know, I feel like everybody, like, I don't feel like we all need to have a bunch of meetings. Let some people like to meet. We don't need a bunch of meetings, but I feel like you need to, you know, do your job, Stephen, and, and Sean needs to do his job, and Judah needs to do his job, and Anna's doing her job, and, you know, it, it, over the years it's been Adriana, and it's been Gliss, and it's been Chop, and it's been Fletch, and it's been Perkins, and, you know, for 17 years it's like everybody, everybody do your job. Um, there's this movie called The Paper. Robert Duvall's plays like the editor of the paper. Michael Keaton's in it. It's an older movie. It's called The Paper. But I, I love the movie. And there's this scene where Robert Duvall is literally listening to Meryl Streep and Michael Keaton argue. Streep is like the editor and Keaton's the you know, other editor and they're arguing over something. 
And Duvall just keeps yelling, do your job. Do your job. He keeps yelling that. I, I hear that voice every day. I, and, and I don't think of it as a bad thing. I like to compete. And I like I feel like, you know what, I'm waking up now and I'm writing at johnconzano.com every day and I'm in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with readers. Like people are literally, if you subscribe, you get the, you get the email the minute I publish, pam, it's in your inbox. I have people within several minutes who will reply back what they think and then I reply back. I'm really enjoying like the direct connection I'm having. There's nobody in the way anymore. So what you're saying, John, is you're not going to tank. You're no, not, you're not tanking. I'm here to win, man. Here to but win. It's, it's just me. But I'm look look at the look at the news in the last week, right? Like I'm getting like 30 or 40 radio stations a day. They're trying to get me to come on their show. I don't have time to do them all, but I'm picking and choosing. Going, okay, I'll go on in Seattle. I'll go on here. I'll go on in Phoenix and Salt Lake because they're in our footprint or the Pac-12 footprint or whatnot. But I'm having a lot of fun, and but I'm competing against ESPN. I'm competing against the Athletic. I'm competing against all the reporters out there. And you know what? I love it. I love it because it's on me. It's just like Kevin at the uh, Bridgetown Window and Door said. He's like, you know, you wake up and if you, it's on you. Like you have a responsibility to yourself. And so I'm really enjoying that. Let's go to the phone lines. Pete's in Eugene. He's got a question about the Pac-12. Pete, welcome to the conversation. Well, thank you. Uh, just a couple of quick comments. Uh, I, in fact, do believe that brand makes a difference on these expansion decisions that some of these conferences are making because Oklahoma is not in a large market. So I would say that Oklahoma's brand is what helped them get accepted to the SEC. Secondly, I would say that if you look at the statistics for Oregon's TV viewership, they actually have more people watching Oregon games on TV than anybody else in the Pac-12 in the last two years. And so if it was about TV viewership, and again, Oregon would sit with both brand and TV viewership in a way that would make them pretty pretty attractive to someone else. Yeah, I, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I mean it with respect, Pete, but, you know, the Portland market has 1.1 million television households. Okay, it's not significant. LA's market had 5.7 million. That's why the Big Ten wanted USC and UCLA. And it doesn't matter to TV whether you know they're watching the Ducks or the Utah fans are watching the Utes. That that's not how they sell to their advertisers, to their sponsors. It's not how they sell television. But what they what they sell is total number of TV households in the market. Now, brand does matter, but it doesn't matter as much as the number of TV households that you have. It's why the Big Ten Conference took Rutgers, because it's getting New York. Now, do a bunch of New Yorkers watch Rutgers football? No. But the Big Ten can turn, or Fox can turn to all of its sponsors and go, look, we have 28 million households, including New York City and Chicago and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. We've got all of that to sell to you. That gets the attention of the advertisers. And I would say this to the Oklahoma point. The Oklahoma point is Oklahoma by itself probably wasn't getting into uh, the SEC. Like, they weren't going to take Oklahoma. Oklahoma City only has 755,000 television sets. Right. 
television households, 755,000. That's nothing, right? It's less than Portland. But they were getting Dallas-Fort Worth when they got Texas. And they, and, and they were adding it. They also had Texas A&M. But they, you know, they were getting 2.9 million TV households. And so Oklahoma, much like UCLA, drafting into their conference with some help. Leave it here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, before we uh, end this radio show, uh, you know, Stephen, uh, I, I, I feel like you and Sean probably should tell our listeners how to find you guys on social media where where can people find you i follow you both but where can they find you yeah i appreciate the follow john um i am at steven underscore von on twitter i made it easier for everyone to spell my name because it's got a, it's got an a in there so i make it steven underscore von steven underscore von steven how you spelling steven s-t-e-v-e-n correct if it's uh with a ph it's stefan well there you go that's my hot take Stephen <laughs> underscore Vaughn on Twitter. Blow him up. Sean, uh, how do they find you? Yeah, I'm all lowercase uh, at Sean Mack underscore 19. S-E-A-N-M-A-C underscore 19. Sean Mack underscore probably make 19. that a little more professional. It's a little cleaner. Yeah. Lose the number. Well, what's the number represent? Uh, I was born on February 19th, 1999. Mm. So my favorite number is 19. Okay, I would just from a brand standpoint, I would think about going Sean Mack there, or Sean McPherson. Go your name. Yeah, yeah, Sean Mack is a good one for sure. My you know? one of my mentors was named Joey Mack. He's at Oregon, and uh, yeah, he did the same thing. I had somebody, I had a brand uh, expert that I know who told me because I on Twitter I'm at John Canzano BFT, and on Instagram I'm at John Canzano. They said you know you should lose the BFT, and I'm like, come on. Can't lose the BFT, and they're That's like, no. That's you your should. brand. Yeah, it is, but they, they're saying I should keep it simple and keep it uniform. But I don't know. I, it's too deep a thought. Follow those two cats. Uh, they do a good job. Uh, I was noticing on your Twitter feed, uh, Stephen Vaughn, uh, that that you're upset about uh, Eric Bledsoe, man. Yeah, I'm going to give him a standing ovation when he comes back. Blazers didn't even uh, didn't even offer to uh, make an offer there. Didn't even so. play him. Didn't play him, nothing. All right, we'll catch you tomorrow. We are back tomorrow with another great show. Thank you for being here. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.